I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 212, and today on the show, we are joined by Bronson Strickland and Carter Nehemiah to discuss the impacts of and dynamics between wolves, coyotes, prey populations, and hunters. All right, folks, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. And today we've got a particularly interesting and unique episode for you as we are wading into the murky waters of predators, in particular wolves and coyotes. And we're discussing the dynamic between these predators and us hunters. Now, I've wanted to do a podcast about predators for a long time, but I've never really known exactly the right way to do it or the right people to talk to. I mean, coyotes and wolves and other predators, as many of you know, they stir up a lot of emotions. You know, this is true outside of the hunting community, but especially within. And it's been this way for many thousands of years, likely. You know, if you go way back in deep history, early on, big predators were a danger to the lives of early humans, and then eventually they were viewed as competition for the scarce resources of food. So, so built into our human DNA, for many, many generations, we've had this built-in set of negative associations with these animals. Now, if you fast forward through time up to the settling of the New World, you've got this landscape now that was jam-packed with predators. And again, humans were in competition with them. And so starting in the east and gradually moving west, our ancestors slowly went about knocking these predators back in an effort to make their lives easier or to eliminate a perceived danger or inconvenience. And they did this, you know, as many of us know now, they did this with disturbing effectiveness. This kind of wholesale war on predators that began in the 1800s led to hundreds of thousands of bounties being claimed on wolves and coyotes, led to the use, the widespread use of poison to to knock out massive, massive numbers of coyotes and wolves and bobcats and and all sorts of other critters even mange was purposefully introduced to wild animal populations to try to eliminate them so after decades of this at least when it came to wolves our predecessors largely achieved their goal you know by almost exterminating the entire wolf population in the lower 48 states coyotes you, you 
hundreds and hundreds of thousands of coyotes were killed, but they proved more difficult to actually get rid of given some of their unique adaptabilities and the fact they have some of these built-in traits that allow them to actually increase their reproductive capabilities and recolonize new areas where other populations have been killed out. So, so this actually ended up leading to coyotes not only surviving the onslaught, but also expanding their range farther east and west as they filled in gaps that were opened up by the removal of wolves. But long story short, this war on predators led to dramatically changed predator levels across the country. Now, if you fast forward through time again to today, with changing societal values and an increased focus on restoring natural ecosystems and native wildlife, predators such as wolves have been able to restake a claim in parts of the lower 48. And, you know, both coyotes and wolves to a lower extent are now present across wide swaths of the country. Once again, though, just like with our early ancestors, this is causing tension. You know, some people simply don't want these critters around, even hunters. And again, I think this comes down to competition in a lot of cases. So that brings us to this podcast today and why I wanted to put these conversations out there. As a, as a hunter myself, of course, and I'll admit a little bit of my bias here, but as a person who believes in conservation and as our role as hunters in conservation, when I hear some of the vitriol today around predators, it, it concerns me a little bit because... And this is just my opinion, um, but predators, the way I see it and the way a lot of people see it and the way biologists see it, predators, just as much as deer or elk or we human hunters, they're part of the system. And we like to talk this big game as hunters that we're the greatest conservationists in the land because of all we do for wildlife and, and the excess taxes we pay that pay for conservation work. But I worry that if we care about and protect one species, be it deer or elk or pheasants or turkeys or whatever, if we're going to protect and care about that species, but then advocate for the total destruction of another, I think we lose some credibility there. And it, it seems, in my opinion, that maybe there's maybe there's some kind of middle ground, though. Maybe it doesn't have to be deer or predators. Maybe there's some way that these two things can coexist, and, and hunters too. So rather than looking at coyotes or wolves as the scourge of the earth, maybe there's a different way we can look at and relate to these animals. When it comes to when it comes to these critters, there's so much emotion and rumor and worry and in some cases mis misinformation out there. Uh, and of course, you know, this isn't just coming from hunters or those who have concerns about predators. There is also a lot of emotion and hyperbole coming from other parties on sometimes the other side of these issues too. But but either way, from either side, the way you look at this, so often these animals are looked at either as gods or devils, either divine or devilish. But maybe coyotes and wolves are not good or evil. Maybe they're just animals. Maybe they're just another piece of the system. Just like the deer and the turkeys and the raccoons and turtles. And because of that, rather than worshipping or demonizing these animals, maybe the way forward is just learning about them and understanding how they fit into this millions of years old system, and then learning how we can fit into that system alongside of them. Maybe hunters and predators don't need to be an either or. Or maybe <laughs> some of you might be thinking, maybe I'm nuts. I can't say for sure I might be nuts, but in today's episode, I wanted to present two conversations that explore this topic, that explore this idea of predators and our relationship with them as hunters, and as I alluded to, 
My goal here is to try and address some of the worries and the rumors around predators and then kind of level set. I want to kind of reality check what's going on out there, what we as hunters need to understand about predators and their impacts on wildlife and our hunting, and what this all means for us going forward. That's that's kind of what I want to achieve with this conversation. So to do that, we have two different guests. This is kind of a two-parter. First off, we have Bronson Strickland, and Bronson's a wildlife biologist and extension professor at Mississippi State University, specializing in deer biology and research. He's been on the show before. Hopefully you heard that past episode. It's a great one. He's an incredible resource of information, but I wanted Bronson to come on the show today to help us talk about coyotes because he's done a lot of looking into the interactions between coyotes and deer. So Bronson's going to help us understand what the real impacts of coyotes are on whitetails, how to determine if coyotes are having an impact on your local whitetail population, and then finally, if they are, what are some reasonable steps to take to, to manage that issue? And then from there, we're going to switch gears, and we're going to go from coyotes over to wolves. Now, I did this interview with Carter Nehemiah while I was out in Boise, Idaho for the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Rendezvous a few weeks ago. And Carter has a really interesting perspective on the issue of wolves because he was a government trapper and predator control agent and then eventually was pulled into the work of the reintroduction of wolves to the Rocky Mountain West in the 90s. And then afterwards, he was tasked with managing and sometimes killing those wolves in later years. So he had to work with biologists and ranchers and hunters and environmentalists, kind of everyone on all sides of the wolf issue. And coming out of that, he has this really interesting perspective on predators and humans and the dynamics between the two. So in my conversation with Carter... We talk about this history, we talk about the wolf reintroduction and subsequent events, we talk about the impacts of wolves, and then kind of get Carter's opinions on you know, how wolves and hunters and other humans can, can kind of occupy the same space moving forward, how that's possible, if so. Um, so that's a really interesting one, too. Now, with both of these conversations, my hope is that these discussions and guests can help us all just do a little bit of thinking. As hunters ourselves and as conservationists, you know, you know, how can we or should we be thinking about predators? How can we live with predators? What do predators mean for hunting? What does all of this mean? Um, you know, you might not agree with everything said in today's episode, and there's likely going to be some ideas or opinions that are different than yours. But I don't think we need to look at that as a bad thing. You know, with partisan cable news, uh, Facebook feeds that are specially curated to reflect back just the only, you know, only the things that we already like and believe, it's sometimes easy to get lost in this kind of echo chamber of our own opinions. We're surrounded by nothing but our own worldview. I think, though, that when this happens, we kind of lose out on something important in life, which, in my opinion, is this ability to hear and learn about and process new ideas and different ways of looking at the world, and then being able to move forward you know, with those new ideas, maybe accepting some, maybe rejecting others, but you know, ultimately growing in one way or another. So I don't know about you, but I'm a fan of hearing new perspectives and at least getting to consider them for myself. So that's what we're going to do today. That's what I'm hoping we can achieve today. Before I ramble on any further then, I guess we need to get this party started. We got to get going with this. It's a long episode, so I hope you can uh, maybe come back to this one over a couple drives or a couple days at the gym because um, it does stretch out over two hours. But I, I hope it's going to be worthwhile for you. I'm going to leave you with one last quick recommendation, which is to go and read the essay titled 
Thinking Like a Mountain by Aldo Leopold. Uh, this is an essay that actually gets brought up in both of these interviews, once by myself, once by the guest. Um, and I think it's one that has influenced a lot of people when it comes to this topic of predators and ecosystems and humans. And you can actually just go out online and Google the title. You can find it online to read in full for free. But I thought I would leave you here with just a quick passage from that essay that I'll read for you. And then we'll get into our conversations with Bronson and Carter. So, here from Thinking Like a Mountain by Aldo Leopold. I quote, In those days, we had never heard of passing up a chance to kill a wolf. In a second, we were pumping lead into the pack, but with more excitement than accuracy. How to aim a steep downhill shot is always confusing. When our rifles were empty, the old wolf was down, and a pup was dragging a leg into impassable slide rocks. We reached the old wolf in time to watch a fierce green fire dying in her eyes. I realized then, and have known ever since, that there was something new to me in those eyes, something known only to her and to the mountain. I was young then, and full of trigger itch. I thought that because fewer wolves meant more deer, that no wolves would mean hunter's paradise. But after seeing the green fire die, I sensed that neither the wolf nor the mountain agreed with such a view. End quote. All right, with me now, again on the podcast, is Bronson Strickland. Welcome back to the show, Bronson. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be back. Yeah, I, me and Dan, when we chatted with you, I don't know if it was last year or two years ago, it was just a great conversation. I've been wanting to have you back for a while, and um, I I really should have brought you back on to talk about deer, since you have so much to share in that world. Um but I actually wanted to talk to you today about something different, Bronson, and I hope you're going to be okay with that. I'm going to take you away from our favorite animal and um, talk about something that does impact that. Um, and I was hoping to talk to you about predators, in particular coyotes, because there's there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of opinions, there's a lot of worry, there's a lot of hubbub, it seems, every few years depending on where you're at, about coyotes and their impacts on deer and deer management. And so I kind of wanted to have a conversation with you to help us kind of level set. Like, what's the reality of the situation? What's happening out there? What do we need to know as white-tailed deer hunters? Um, and so with all that being said, Bronson, even though you're a deer guy, do you think you could give us like a super high-level overview of of the coyote as a species, maybe a little bit of natural history or its current status Anything like that, um, just to kind of help us understand this animal more than just it's a look kind tiny wolf looking thing that runs around in the fields every once in a while. <laughs> well, I, I, thank you, Mark. I promise you, I'll I'll do my best. And you know, I I study deer, and I don't really, you know, study coyotes specifically, except in you know how they're affecting white-tailed deer. Um, so in the eastern U.S. Um, a lot of people consider the coyote uh, a novel, you know, predator in the whitetail system, and it really depends on where you're at geographically. We we tend to think of, uh, you know, over over deep time that the coyote was more of the the western uh, canid, you know, it involved more in, you know, open areas, open habitat. Uh, it's omnivorous, and so it's eating fruits and things like that, as well as small mammals. And then, you know, it's kind of opportunistic. So it's not nearly like something like a wolf or, a, you know, cougar slash mountain lion, where it's, a, you know, it's an obligate ca carnivore. It's, it's kind of an opportunistic omnivore. And 
So as that species kind of moved from west to east and, you know, the best we can tell from from anecdotal evidence, uh, genetic evidence, etc., you know, it's kind of like the way we are seeing the spread of, of wild hogs. mark up your direction is uh it, it was facilitated uh, greatly by human beings and so there's always going to be natural movement natural colonization but some of the studies back in the southeast from you know 30 or so years ago showed that a lot of the coyotes were were brought in and contrary to popular belief it, you know they weren't brought in by a state wildlife agency uh under the the cover of night it was brought in by hunters for the purpose of hunting. And a lot of them were brought into the, you know, fox pens or, you know, things like that where people like to run their dogs uh, to catch them. And those eventually escape and get loose. And then over time, that's augmented by natural colonization. And now we have, uh, you know, in the 2018, we essentially have coyotes everywhere in the eastern United States and we even have uh, coyotes in urban settings. I'm pretty sure right now somewhere in Central Park in New York, there's probably a, a coyote somewhere. So that just goes to show you how, how adaptable that species is, and more than likely it's here to stay. I don't see any, any way at all that um, we are not going to be managing deer uh, with consideration of coyotes and any time in the near future in our lifetime, certainly. Yeah. They seem to be one of those species, kind of like deer, that has become super adaptable to living with humans. Unlike most other relatively large mammals that, in some cases, struggle with our encroachment on their habitat and our, <clears throat> you know, just our, our uh, being present in the environment and all the different things that, that entails, they've uniquely kind of found a way to intertwine themselves within, like you said, even in urban areas, kind of like white-tailed deer or cockroaches or rats or these different animals that have made a living off of living around humans. Um, they're kind of unique in that way. And some people may not like that. It might be viewed admirable in some ways too, if you're looking at purely as the, you know, the evolutionary, uh, I don't know, uh, creativity that these animals seem to have. Um, so that being said, like you mentioned, coyotes are becoming ever more present across the eastern United States, southern, southeastern United States, um, and we're becoming more aware of this as deer hunters too. There's, as you said, a lot of work being done to understand the interaction between coyotes and deer, and that's something you've worked on a lot. Before we dive into what the results are of that kind of stuff and what the actual impacts are, because there's a lot of rumors and opinions and ideas of what the impacts of coyotes on are, are on deer. I'm curious just to hear what kind of actual studies have been done. You know, what are we looking into? How are we doing these things? How are we learning about the interactions between coyotes and deer and that impact? Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot of ways to look at it. The, the two that are probably most common and, uh, I would say very definitive. You know, they, they both of these types of studies provide irrefutable evidence uh, on impacts. Are first of all is just looking at what a coyote eats, and so those are simply you know diet analyses. And commonly, you know, one of the, the cheapest and widespread and often used are uh, what we call scat studies. But basically, you're going into an area and you collect the uh, the poop. 
and uh, you do an analysis on that, and you can tell, you know, from the feces, what, of course, what, what the animal has been eating. And so you can identify, you know, the hair of different mammals that they've consumed and sometimes the remains of different fruits and so forth. So that, that was done decades ago. Um, now, you might, might imagine, Mark, one of the things that can be misleading is when you find a lot of deer in the diet of a coyote, you, you don't know if the coyote killed the deer or scavenged on the deer. You would assume if you found fawn hair uh, in the scat that, yeah, more than likely the coyotes killed the fawn. But for adults, you never knew, and you would see a higher prevalence rate during deer season, which – you would assume is, is from carcass remains or from a wounded deer. Um, and so that, that then leads to more sophisticated analyses where you can really, you know, d- determine impacts and, and directly measure um, the prevalence of predation. And that's when you mark individual deer. And, and most commonly what is done um, is, is what we call, call fawn depredation studies. And, you know, one of the best ways to do that is, is you will mark a doe, a pregnant female. So you would capture a, a pregnant female and you can actually insert this transmitter into their vagina. And when they give birth, then that transmitter comes out of the doe's body, goes out to the ground. And then there's a difference in the ambient temperature, of course, from being inside of the doe to being exposed to, you know, the outside air. And that transmitter then sends sends a signal, a GPS location, and researchers rush in and they can find the fawn or fawns and they basically mark them. They put a little ear tag on them and put some type of GPS transmitter on them. And those little transmitters allow the researchers to know when that fawn is alive and when it's dead. So when that transmitter stops moving for a X amount of hours, you get an alert saying, hey, something's going on with this fawn. And then once again, you go there and you determine um, the cause of death. Often this is obvious based on the way the fawn has been uh, consumed or, you know, torn apart, so to speak. You can diagnose whether it was a bobcat kill or a died of starvation or a coyote. Um, and then even most sophist- the sophisticated way to do it is if, if you can't readily identify the predator is that you can take uh, swabs and get DNA samples from the remains of the fawn so that you can detect the saliva of the predator that was chewing on the hide, chewing on the bones, etc. And so that, that kind of CSI technology really allows you to definitively determine uh, you know, the rate at which you, know, you have a sample of fawns on the landscape, this cohort of fawns, and you can determine, you know, what we call cause-specific mortality. How many of them died, and those that did die, what were they killed by? And so those studies, again, have been done largely in the last decade, probably some a little bit more, but that's where the, the, the best technology uh, has, has really been refined in the last decade. And so a lot of the studies that you see now are, are, are based on those types of uh, technologies and those types of results. Hmm. So have there been any definitive answers then that have come from these studies? Can you give us a blanket statement that say coyotes make this impact on deer or is it a little more nuanced than that? 
Unfortunately, it's nuanced, and people get so sick and tired of deer biologists always having to qualify, saying, <laughs> well, it depends, but this is, this is a classic it depends type study. So you can go to any particular location and, you know, you, you think about these different dynamics that, that are going on, Mark. You've got, you know, you've got variation in coyote density. Uh, so you've got variation in the, the number of hunters on the landscape. You've got variation in the amount of prey on the landscape. And then you've got variation in the hiding places for the prey. And so there, there have been several studies uh, that have, you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, you know, they'll mark these fawns and anywhere from 30, 40, 50, up to, you know, 60% of the fawns will be eaten, killed and eaten by coyotes. Um, you have some other places where some of those dynamics are a little bit different and you won't see such a big impact. I, I think if you want a blanket statement, I, I think it's safe to say that wherever you have a sufficient number of a viable population of coyotes on the landscape and a viable population of deer, you are going to have deer that are killed, either fawns, mostly fawns and also some adults, are going to die by coyotes every single year, and there's nothing you can do about it. The most important question is, are they a driver of that population? And you really can't tell, Mark, you, you can't even, even at a county scale, you can't say that coyotes are driving that population. It's a little more site-specific than that. Can you, can you elaborate on what that means by when you say driving the population? Uh, think of it as being the most important limiting factor. So think okay. of it as, as in terms of one single variable affecting the dynamics of that population. Uh, it would, in this case, if we were to say predation is driving the population, then that would mean that would be the single most important factor that is influencing the stability, rise, or fall of the deer population. Okay. Now here's a question. I don't know if this is, uh, I'm assuming this has got to be somewhere, but is it fair to say that across most areas of whitetail country that hunters are the largest driver of a population in hunter, not hunter predation, whatever you want to call it, our, our kill of deer every year? Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's going to be an exception here or there, and especially in uh, urban and suburban environments. But yeah, on the average, I think that's very safe to say. Okay. So then, so then you're saying the tough thing though, is finding a situation or determining how much of a driver predator impacts actually are. Um, and you mentioned there's been different studies that have shown a significant impact. There've been different studies that have shown not a significant impact. I know from, from reading up on a lot of these myself and studying them over the years, a lot of this has to do with something that we call fawn recruitment. And that is kind of this indicator of that impact. Can you, can you dive into that for us? Help us understand what that means and then how coyotes might or might not be impacting that in different areas. Abs absolutely. <clears throat> um, so we often say that if, if you could only measure one thing, you know, it's, it's, it's not as fun or sexy as, you know, measuring antlers, but if you were managing a deer population and, and it's like, I could only have this one piece of information 
to make decisions about managing that population, it would be recruitment or fawn recruitment. And so, so think of that as a paycheck going into your account, you know, every month, every year, whatever. If you are going to harvest a population at some level, I'm going to take 5%, 10%, in some places in real productive herds, 30% of the herd could be harvested every year. You have to know what the inputs are going to be. If I'm putting 30% in, I can take 30% out and that population would remain stable. So that is what fawn recruitment is. And so biologists are wanting to know, you know, how often, how many fawns are and, and recruiting just simply means living long enough to uh, be recruited into the population. And we typically mean that, you know, they, they made it through hunting season, they made it to winter, and assume they're going to be recruited into the springtime population. Okay, so Mark, let's say you have a scenario where you had 20 years ago, there were very few coyotes uh, in this particular area. And it's a heavily hunted area. And doe harvest is pretty high. Buck harvest is pretty high. Uh, you know, so it's providing ideal hunting recreation for, you know, the public. And now you change that one single variable. Uh, the amount of hunters haven't changed. The amount of hunting area hasn't changed. You kind of every year, I'm just making up numbers here, but we're going to, you know, we're going to have 500 hunter man days on our property this year and every year you know your permit system and 500 people get to spend a day on the out on out on that property a year killing deer and then you add in this new element um called you know coyote fawn depredation and rather than recruiting again let's just say easy numbers whereas you used to recruit you know 300 fawns into the population every year now you're only recruiting 100 fawns into the population the result won't be immediate, but over time, three years later, four years later, five years later, because that paycheck going into the account is getting less and less and less, you start noting the principal in your account, the adult population goes down, 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 because you are spending more than you're putting in. And that has been one of the biggest uh, sources of some of these studies over the past decade is what in the heck is going on? We've got this big property or this area, uh, maybe, you know, county scale type thing where we used to have plenty of deer and now hunters aren't killing as many deer as they used to. They're not seeing as many deer as they used to. And coincidentally, we are seeing a lot more coyotes than we used to. And sure enough, when you do some of those studies and you start marking those fawns and, and figuring out what caused specific mortality is, you learn that, yeah, well, that's the reason the deer population is declining, because we're only recruiting about half as many fawns as we used to. So is – what am I trying to say here? Is that always – I guess number one, how often is that actually happening? Because you hear you hear people talk about, oh, coyotes, 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 but the situation you just mentioned where you have that fawn recruitment rate reduced so significantly that the population does decline, do you have any idea? I mean, could you say that, you know, maybe if we had to lump all of whitetail country into a bucket and then could you say that in one out of ten, like, 
10% of our populations have that kind of impact, or is it 50% of the populations are having those kinds of impact? Is this rare? Is this common? Um, I don't know how exactly to articulate this, but is this the rule or the exception? I would say somewhere in between. I think I think it definitely tends to be more of an exception. Um, and, and Mark, it all depends on scale as well. You know, um, is the deer herd doing well in the state of Michigan or Iowa? Well, yeah. Uh, what about in this county? Eh, pretty much. How about on this property or, you know, or within this 5,000 acre area? Um, you would kind of have to look at it like that. You know, in the eastern, especially the southeastern U.S., the deer herd is certainly doing just fine in the presence of coyotes. Uh, people are still seeing deer. People are still hunting deer. You know, there's a lot of support that the deer population has declined somewhat, but not a lot. When you look at that type of scale, you know, and I can speak for Mississippi, you know, the deer herd, depending on the index and the analysis you do, yeah, over the past decade, it may have declined a little bit, but not a lot. Now, you can go to certain areas within Mississippi based on a lot of details, and it's usually the interaction of, you know, is there a high predator population like coyotes, and what is what are the habitat conditions like? And there's some pretty powerful evidence that coyotes have really taken a toll on that deer population at a, at a much more local scale. So, you know, you kind of said, uh, Mark, you know, is it is it, you know, 10 percent or 50 percent? You know, I am just really guesstimating here. I would say it's probably somewhere less than 20 percent. And it might even be it may even be less than 10 percent where coyotes are really, you know, driving. You know, they are the single most important thing of affecting the population. OK, but, but there are certainly things that we can do proactively with that. Uh, it's just identifying why is the deer population declining so much? Is it indeed coyotes? And then, you know, what what type of steps can you can you take to, to help it out, to help yeah. the deer herd out? So here, here's a question. Could, would it be, or is there, are there any benefits to having coyotes on the landscape as a deer hunter and manager? Because one way I could see this in some situations, and so maybe I'll throw out a, a, a possibility and you tell me if this is true or false or, or maybe somewhere in between, but for decades now, um, whitetail researchers and managers have been telling us that we have too many deer, too many does, too many does. We need to, we need to harvest more. We try, need to try, to try to bring the population back in balance with the habitat. And in a lot of places, even now, even where I hunt and, and hang out, that still doesn't seem to be the case. There still seem to be way more deer than a healthy habitat can support, which is leading to probably deer that aren't quite as healthy as they could be. It's probably leading, maybe in part is impacting fawn recruitment too, because these, these deer aren't getting the nutrition they need because of the fact that the habitat isn't in balance with the herd. In a situation like that, is having natural predators back on the landscape a good thing because they can help us balance things? Because if we, the hunters, aren't doing enough ourselves, they serve that ecosystem function. Is that a way to look at this in some cases too, or is that baloney? I think that's the furthest thing from baloney. Um, I, I agree with that sentiment and the way you describe that perfectly. And, you know, the, it's never, ever with deer management and deer hunters, it's never going to be a, you know, one size shoe fits all. Um, 
my colleague here at the Deer Lab, Steve Damaris. That is something that has been a, a presentation he has given many, many times um, at different seminars is, you know, the sky is not necessarily falling here. We we have a new predator on the landscape. It's been here quite some time and it's gonna, getting a lot of attention. But there are probably more situations where the coyote may be helping the deer herd out some, bringing some of bringing this herd back into check and back into balance with with the habitat. And a lot of that mark is the what have hunters expected to see for so long? And we think back when when the, the uh, QDM, the Quality Deer Management Association, began and started educating people about. We've got to get this deer herd back into balance with the habitat, you know, for healthy deer and for healthy habitats. And in a lot of places, um, it's, it's just really, it causes, um, how should I say it? It's too much work. The, you know, the novelty of doe harvest wears off really quickly for a lot of people. And so... Rather than a particular hunting club in the South having to kill 50, 70, 150 does every year, you know, coyotes moving into the system and maybe only having to harvest 50 does a year, um, that's really not a bad trade-off. And, you know, in a lot of those systems, too, where you have healthy habitat, I think you're going to be hard-pressed to see where coyotes are going to be really hurting the deer herd at all. So in a case like that, I think you're actually helping the deer hunting scenario and helping the deer herd quality, having that predator in the system. Yeah, it, it's interesting because this is actually impacting me right now. Um, one of the main properties I hunt in Michigan for the longest, for the first, I don't know, five, six, seven years that I've hunted here, I'd never got a coyote on trail camera. I never saw one, never heard one, um, nothing. And um, I had heard about there being some really significant um, coyote trapping and hunting being done in the area over the years. Um, guys running in with dogs and a lot of stuff like that. And it just seemed like there never was much of a population left over, at least that I was anecdotally seeing. Um, and then over the last couple of years, I have been seeing that tick up. I'm hearing them at night. I'm seeing them getting them on, pic on trail camera. And at first I was like, oh, is this going to be an issue? But then very quickly, another side of me said, well, wait, Mark, for years now, you've complained about the fact that no one else shoots does around here and there's so many deer and it just totally out of whack. There's so many does, hardly any bucks. You can't go anywhere in the property without spooking deer. Maybe this isn't such a bad thing. Um, and, I, and I think that it's really natural. It's kind of ingrained human nature because of kind of our, our deep history with predators as competition in many cases, you know, way back in the day, we looked at these animals as competition for a scarce resource, which is our food and, or as a danger to our health. And that I think has stuck with us over the, the thousands of years ever since. And I think there's, there's always this natural tendency to when they, when they're one of the options to point a finger at, it's really easy to point that finger and be like, Oh, that's, that's the issue. Maybe sometimes it's not quite as much as our gut instinct always tells us, and that's kind of what I'm what I'm kind of seeing in, in this own personal example of my own here. Um, now, something else that I I've read a lot about, and I know you you've talked about in the past on some of your own podcasts, is some of the ways that deer naturally deal with predation. Um, can you talk a little bit about things like birth synchrony and some of the other things that that whitetails do to to help? live with predators and survive 
Yeah, that that's probably and it's a really interesting topic. Um, yeah, but but synchronizing birth is kind of you know natural selection over time, you know, and that's just a product of differential survival and reproduction. Um, but but over time. When you, quote, swamp the predators, so if, if you could pick, you know, a three-day or a three-week time when all of the females dropped their fawns, their, their calves, their pups, whatever, um, you simply overwhelm the number of predators that are on the landscape. And so it stinks for, for your offspring to be chosen. You know, they're the ones that's uh, eaten, but it's kind of one of those uh, bet hedging strategies where um, if you can swamp the predator population by having yet yeah, this synchronized birth event, then, it, you know, that is that is a way to ensure that at a population scale, you know, you're, you're always going to have uh, recruit, have some type of recruitment of young. Um, the other way, so that, that's kind of more to, at, a, at a population scale. Now, of, of course, at an individual scale, um, the mother is going to be selecting the most appropriate cover. And so there's going to be variation uh, in, in habitat, vegetation, the appropriate amount of cover on the landscape. And that could be based on experience, you know, what a mother has learned. Uh, a mother has learned that if I go to this area and I bed down in this type of cover, I keep having fawns. And so she repeats that behavior over and over again. Um, whereas you have another mother that doesn't have, doesn't even live in the best habitat or, or doesn't have, you know, access to it, um, drops her fawn and they keep getting eaten. And so, you know, things just kind of evolve over time like that is an individual strategy. And here's something really remarkable of how these, these things can really evolve, uh, in real time and in, in our lifetime is, my colleague, uh, Marcus Lashley, he and, and others, uh, when he was a Ph.D. student and postdoc at NC State, they did a real interesting study on uh, Fort Bragg. And so it's a really, really open landscape and lots of details here. But um, bottom line, they, they use prescribed fire uh, on an annual basis or every other year and um, the, the vegetation because of that is kept very, very low to the ground. So it's a very, very open landscape in terms of the understory. So what you have is more developed structure near what we call the drains or the creek banks. You know, it's these, these wetter areas where the fire stops burning. And these may be very narrow corridors, but it's where you might have more shrub development and things like that. And so a doe being a doe, you know, going somewhere where, you know, in her, you know, her, her search image, you know, through her eyes and brain of this is where I need to lay down and have a fawn. Unfortunately, because that vegetation type is so limited and linear, that coyotes can easily hunt those drains. And so he actually saw that fawn survival dropped in a really, really good hiding cover was lower than in an area that was completely wide open with hardly any cover whatsoever because the coyotes were not searching that open landscape. The coyote was being a coyote and walking an edge, walking along that edge, smelling the fawn and 
you know, uh, capturing it and killing it. So that's one of the things where the doe picking the doe picked the right cover, you know, but unfortunately, because that type of cover was so rare on the landscape, it actually gave the coyote the advantage. Interesting. So they're uh, working uh, simultaneously, Mark. Could could you speak a little bit more to this habitat component of coyote impacts on fawn predation? Because it seems like more and more of the things I've read, it seems like that's a huge factor. So you mentioned the linear cover versus a different type. Can you talk a little bit more about that, what we're learning about how habitat does uh, influence the impact? Yeah, absolutely. And this has been really difficult to prove so far. Um, it, it, it ends up being a little bit more of a complicated study than you might imagine trying to develop all these cover, all these cover types and so forth. So you end up kind of looking retrospectively at, okay, what were the habitat characteristics where fawn survival was greater? What were the habitat characteristics where fawn survival was less? And, and bottom line, Mark, it's, um, it can come in a lot of different shapes. So I don't like to say like for in your neck of the woods, Mark, I wouldn't say it needs to be this particular cover type or this vegetation type. It's more like, and I don't, I don't know, Mark, if you saw this little video we, we made, we've had on our social media site, we call the, the, uh, the basketball technique. Yes. I saw but, that. It kind of that kind of provides you know visually um, what we're talking about, and so we just kind of as a little game to demonstrate a point is you know you'll have me and Marcus or me and Steve and you know one of you cover your eyes turn around and let me hurl a basketball not very far you know ten or fifteen yards or whatever, and then try to find it, and obviously where there's well de- developed cover so I'm talking about cover that is knee high to waist high. Um, it can take you a while to find that basketball. However, if you were to go uh, in a typical forest stand, so let's go into a place that had a developed forest, a developed canopy, you know, with 80, 90, or 100% canopy closure, that shading has caused the, the understory to grow away. And so you, even though you have trees and you have the structural cover, uh, in terms of a forest, when you get down on your knees, you can see anything on the ground. Not only can you see a basketball, you can see a baseball if you rolled it on the ground. That is not providing any type of fawning cover. And so it's more easy pickings. A coyote or a group of coyotes can work through that type of, uh, of vegetation really, really easy. It's not to say whatsoever that, hey, if I have great fawning cover, I'm never going to experience uh, mortality from coyotes. Not, not at all. But what you've done is you've increased the search time. You've, you've complicated the coyote's eyes. You've complicated his nose. The, the scent where it's coming from is going to be broken up. And so essentially you, you've just made it um, much more difficult for a coyote to find a fawn. They may find them eventually, but they're not going to find them at the same rate. And so that's what what we're looking at, Mark, is you want larger areas, bigger is better. You don't want them in strips. And that was like what I was referring to with Marcus's study is you can just think about this where 
if the only cover you had was 10 or 15 yards wide and 100 yards long, man, a, a coyote could hunt that out in a matter of minutes. It's just literally got to walk on the edge up one side, down the other, through the middle of it, and it's probably going to detect via sight or smell a fawn that's in there. But now if you had this in a larger, wider area in terms of acres, you know, 10 acres or 20 acres or 30 acres, and you had that distributed all over the landscape, now you've really stacked the odds in favor of the fawn being able to hide from a hide from the predator like a coyote. So tell me this then, Bronson, because we're talking about some of the different habitat impacts, but I guess I kind of got ahead of myself by asking you about that because what I want to, what I want to make sure we understand too is how do we even know this is a problem? So I guess my first question is how do we determine if, we might have a coyote issue or, or influence that we need to think about. Like, how do you, how do you figure out if your fawn recruitment rate is too low or, or whatever it might be? How do we determine that? And then I want to know, I guess my second question would be then how do we determine which one of the levers we need to push? So I, I think based on what you're saying here, if we determine there's a challenge here with our fawn recruitment, I'm thinking there's three different levers we can push. And you tell me if I'm wrong here, but Number one, first lever you just talked about could be habitat. We could change our habitat to try to address that issue. Number two, we could try to push the predator lever, which would be some kind of predator management. And then number three, we could just adjust our own doe harvest. So hunter doe harvest, you could adjust that lever. Um, so here I am asking you a thousand questions. I guess number one, Bronson, are those the, are those the three levers? And then I'm going to take us one step back after you answer me that. Yeah, that that's that. Those are the three levers. Yep, those are the three options you have. If you manipulate any one or all of those, then you can make a change. Exactly. Okay. So then, with that being the case, how do we determine if there's an issue? I guess yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's start there. Okay. How do we figure that out? Okay, so you can do this um, with with data collection. So the, you, it doesn't need to be anything sophisticated. But all it is is going to take some time. So, and I, I have seen this firsthand. And so I'll be, and heck, one of these was the, the own hunting club that I was a part of. I started noticing a big problem in that if you have really healthy deer, I mean, the, the does that we were harvesting were in fantastic condition, uh, body size, body fat, but man, I started noticing this trend. This was the first year I was in this hunting club. I'm like, gosh, I don't understand this. Half of the does that we harvest during bow season, not late gun season, during archery season are not lactating. It's like we've, we've got a problem here. And so I let this go on just to make sure it wasn't an anomaly. And, you know, year two, yes, the exact same thing. It's like we, we have less than... Uh, 50, sometimes only 40% lactation in adult females that are otherwise in fantastic condition. Um, then we started noticing that, um, well, I noticed right when I got on the, the property or the, the hunting club, that uh, the state of our forest on that property, was it, it was the obvious to me that we didn't have any cover. And completely coincidental, a little natural experiment took place. Uh, the property owner of where we leased was a timber company. Uh, timber company then came in and did a timber harvest. 
uh, removed three or four hundred acres of timber. Uh, the next spring and summer, now we had cover everywhere and even more developed the next year. And immediately, uh, the fawning, uh, fawn survival and lactation rates shot right back up to normal. They were 70 and 80%. So that was just something personally that happened to me. I didn't have to take any sophisticated measurements. It's just basically where if I'm looking at lactation rate and it is well below 50 or 40%, then you have fawns dying for some reason. Now, how would you assume that it's coyotes? Well, a lot of that can come from uh, your camera surveys. A lot of that can come from scat surveys. You know, things I would do is I would get on my ATV and I would just drive our roads. And when you're seeing uh, scat everywhere, I'm seeing deer hair in it. When I'm putting up, you know, I was doing camera surveys all year long and I get camera surveys where I see a, a pack of two or three coyotes in one frame. And then an hour later, I see them running back with a fawn head in its mouth. You know, all these things like that are pretty easy to diagnose that when the deer herd, the condition of the doe is very healthy and reproduction is low, then that's probably what's going on. And even if you don't want to, you know, if you don't want to get back to the skin and shed and you don't, you're not sure about how to do this lactation measurements and lactation index, um, use the tools that we have available to you or, you know, just writing it down that every time you go sit in a stand, you are recording how many does and how many fawns you are seeing. And if you get to be to the end of archery season, assuming you had sufficient samples and well into gun season, where your hunter still can accurately identify an adult doe versus a fawn, and you've only seen about uh, one fawn for every three does or something like that, then you very well may have you know, uh, a lot of fawns being eaten by predators. Is there any formula or... Um, easy system to input data into that will help us determine some of those things that you said, like fawn recruitment or, or whether maybe whether it be observations or trail camera surveys. Is there something like that out there that you could point people towards to help actually, you know, quantify this a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Well, a tool that we developed, so I'm, I'm very biased here, of course, but um, it's one of the, the tools we developed called the, the deer hunt app, you know, a mobile app. And not only does it do that for you, it, it, you know, you can keep track of buck age structure. You can keep track of adult sex ratio. You can keep track of where hunters are seeing deer, where they're not seeing deer. They're seeing them during the morning or during the afternoon, et cetera, et cetera. But, but literally, Mark, that was one of the most prominent goals we had in mind was that someone, while they are hunting, is to collect data. And you don't have to rely to when your hunt is over and drive back and record it on a data sheet. It is simply an app that you can open up specific to you, specific to your, your property or your hunting club. And during your hunt, you're just recording. You're just tapping a button. Doe, doe, fawn. Or there's a doe and two fawns. And then over time, if you and enough people are doing that, then, yeah, on, on our app, you just run a report and there is a metric for you, fawn recruitment, fawns per doe. And so literally the math is done for you. 
And, awesome. and it's it's nothing that you can't do yourself. I mean, it is literally nothing that if you got back to your truck or to the skin and shed or whatever and wrote it down on an index card or in an Excel spreadsheet, we're not doing anything special. We're just making it very, very easy for you to do it and conveniently to do it. Yeah, love it. That's that's a big thing, convenience. Um, so, hey, Mark, one more. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, too. It depends on where you're at in the country and relative to when fawning dates are, parturition dates. But also another way to do that is, is of course, with a camera survey. Um, some people might do a preseason. You can kind of kill uh, um, a bunch of birds with one stone and do a preseason camera survey. And you can see, hey, what's my buck age structure? What bucks do I want to protect? What bucks do I want to harvest? And if, if fawning season uh, was back, you know, six weeks or two months before that time, then you would be able to also count the number of fawns per doe you're seeing there. So another easy tool you can do there. That's not as easy in Mississippi. A lot of times our fawns are hitting the ground uh, just maybe sometimes even a few weeks before bow season begins. And so we typically underestimate fawn recruitment when we do a preseason camera survey. So we'll sometimes do do ours at the end of the season. But but I wanted to say that. So th there, there's typically three things. You can look at the lactation index. You can look at uh, during deer season hunter observations and then use your camera surveys. Three, three different ways you can tell. Now, Something I just thought of as as you're describing this, you know, if we're looking at those three different um, oh variables or whatever to help us determine if there's an issue, could those things be impacted by other factors though? So could something like just poor habitat in general, poor nutrition available, could that impact fawn recruitment or lactation rates and things like that? So we might be seeing these negative red flashing lights and then we say, oh, it's got to be coyotes then, but could it be something else? Absolutely. I'm, gl I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so for me, what would be the, the biggest signal to me that I've, not only do I have a fawn cover habitat problem, I've got a food habitat problem if the deer are in poor condition. So if does, if their body weight is below average, if buck body weights and antler weight, uh, antler size is below average. And, and even looking at fat, you know, getting when you're skinning the deer and looking at that level of fat on the rump, looking at kidney fat index, things like that. That's when I start leaning more towards we've got a situation here that, yeah, predators may be uh, augmenting the situation. They may not be the cause of it. It looks like we've got a nutrition problem. And then the predators are simply, you know, making it a little bit worse. So I look at the condition of the deer. Now, you can always have a, a disease event. You know, it's all, it could always be possible that there's some specific virus that may hit fawns a little more than it would adults. Um, but that's probably just going to be a one-year anomaly type thing. Most of these, Mark, are pretty chronic. You're not just going to have this one year where fawn recruitment is really down unless it was some type of disease. Usually these things build slowly over time. The habitat gets... Uh, progressively worse over time. Predator populations grow over time, and you start seeing this trend that you can pick up. Mm, yep. Okay, so we've we've kind of determined that 
if you're seeing a healthy deer population, like the deer that are on your property are healthy, but your fawn recruitment is lower, the lactation rate is, is low, that's pointing to, okay, maybe we have a predator impact happening here. And as we talked about already, that's probably more so the exception than the rule. But let's say we're in that situation where we're, we're looking at these different factors and saying, okay, yeah, it really does look like predators are making a significant impact here. We've got three levers to press, as we talked about already. We, we said we could actually manage the predators. We could improve the habitat, or we could adjust our harvest. Could you rank for me how effect, or how would you rank those three levers in effect in, in scale of what's the most effective to least effective and or which ones we should try first? Like how should we go through those list of levers? Okay, sure thing. Uh, so one thing we have to consider from, from the onset is do you own the property or not, or do you have permission and the ability to manage the habitat? So like me, the situation I was in, I leased property. <clears throat> I, I had that, that option, that lever was taken away from me. I can't manage the habitat. So I'm left with two things. I'm left with um, we need to adjust our expectations. So it might be that we just say, hey, our deer herd is going to be smaller than it used to be. Um, we might – are we satisfied with that? Uh, maybe rather than harvesting this level of does every year, uh, we only need to harvest, you know, this level, half the amount of does every year. And we might reach then an equilibrium. The coyotes are going to take some, but the hunters are taking less. And so we can reach that, that balancing point of where we're still happy as hunters with the number of deer we're seeing and the condition of those deer that we're seeing. Um, the other one would be, if I'm leasing land, would be to try to manage the predator. And that is just not going to be, for most people, that effective. Um, it's going to be very costly unless you're doing it all yourself. And these coyotes are pretty darn amazing in terms of how quickly, once you remove them from the landscape, that territory or home range that was left vacant, uh, quickly becomes occupied. And so we advise people, if that is an action you choose to take, you really need to focus your trapping efforts during or immediately preceding the fawning season. Whenever fawns are hitting the ground uh, in your neck of the woods, right before that is when the trapping effort should be taking place. And, you know, if it's one of these, if you have a sizable property, and you're only removing two or three coyotes off that property, unless you just have fun doing it, you're probably not having an impact whatsoever. You really need to remove a large proportion of coyotes off the landscape. And then it becomes an annual event because of the Those, those coyotes are going to – those transient coyotes that are moving around looking for an open territory, as soon as the one's gone, they backfill and, and occupy that new territory. So that, that brings me to, you know, what am I getting the most bang for the buck for, pun intended, that is going to, you know, be enduring, that I'm going to get years and years of benefit from, and that's going to be habitat management. I'm, I'm never going to eliminate – fawn predation by coyotes. I'm never going to eliminate that, but I think it can be minimized to a great degree by just managing the understory. 
And that's going to be the, the habitat tools we talk about all the time. Uh, priority number one is getting sunlight on the ground. And whether that be uh, whether that be with prescribed fire, whether that be with typically it's going to take uh, a thinning operation. It might be a clear cut. It might be thinning, uh, whatever that is, but getting sunlight on the ground and developing that understory so that you can develop both cover and food. Like I say, you know, knee high to waist high where you can throw that basketball and hide it. That is probably going to be over time the least amount of effort you have to put in and you're going to get the most result from it over time. Yeah, there's one other lever um, that I'm wondering if you would add to this too that I just thought of. I've, I've heard in the past, we mentioned it earlier, birth synchrony, that you can influence birth synchrony um, a little bit with your herd structure, with doing things to improve uh, your herd, whether it be age structure or buck to doe ratio. Is that true? Are there things we can do when we make our hunting shoot or don't shoot de decisions that can actually help us make sure we get that prey overload that could help minimize predation as well? Um, yes, to a degree. Um, usually the way that happens historically you know, when we talk about back in the, the day before, you know, quality deer management really took hold in North America, when we had, when we were during the establishment period, does were protected and, the, you know, the bucks were just hammered. And we had these adult sex ratios that were way out of whack. And so we had four to one, five to one, six to one, et cetera, adult does to adult bucks. That is the single biggest cause of the rut or conception dates being spread out so long. And the reason that is, is that when you have does coming into heat, they are pretty much already synchronized in an area. And so they're coming into heat and you literally don't have enough adult bucks to breed the does as they come into heat. And so you might have uh, you might only get half of the does bred during their first estrus cycle, and then they have to cycle again, you know, about 28 days later, and then they're bred the second time and maybe even the third time. That's typically when we see those parturition dates really spread out. We don't see that as much nowadays. Um, there, w without a doubt, in some places, the sex ratio is still far in favor of females, but it's typically not on a large scale the way it used to be. So just getting the adult, the buck-to-doe sex ratio in that good, you know, two-to-one or one-and-a-half-to-one ratio, then then your, your uh, parturition dates are pretty much going to be synchronized for you without you having to really take any active role. Okay. Interesting. That's always been one of those things that I've wondered if, if you can improve things a little bit there. Um, so it's good to get that additional context. So I, I feel like we, we've covered a lot here, Bronson. We've kind of gone down this funnel of ideas to help us understand, okay, what's the situation? How much of an impact do predators have? In what ways are they making an impact? How do we determine what that impact is? How do we choose what levers to push if there is a, a, an impact? Um, it's, it's really interesting stuff, and I think what, what I was hoping we could do here and what I think we did is, is I think we've kind of kind of done like a reality check because there's a lot, as we talked about a little bit a while ago, it's easy sometimes to point the finger at like the big, pointy, sharp 
edged, sharp fanged, shiny thing and say, oh, that's, that's the big bad wolf or the big bad coyote. Maybe sometimes they are, they are challenged. Maybe sometimes they aren't. But I think going through this helps us understand, okay, what are the impacts? How do we work within the constraints of whatever situation we're in to, to, to deal with that, live with that, whatever it might be? Um, but I'm going to ask you, and maybe you don't want to do this, but would you, if you're willing to take off your scientist, researcher, biologist hat, if you take off that hat and then put just your hunter um, or, and I, I'm assuming based on everything I know about you and as I've talked to, to you, I think that you are not only just a hunter and a researcher, but a conservationist and someone who, who appreciates wildlife. Is there, if we're looking outside of just the management implications, is there an ethical um, obligation that we have just as people who, who like to call ourselves conservationists um, to not just, uh, what am I trying to say, to, to somewhat embrace or learn to coexist with predators? Is there is there something to be said about learning to live with these other animals versus the scorched earth policy of the fact that they're competition, we got to wipe them off the face of the earth. Cause that's kind of what we did in the 1800s and early 1900s. Um, and things have changed. Um, but I'm just curious if you would be willing to speak at all to what your opinion or, or thoughts are on, on the ethics of, of how we interact with predators. Um, if it's a good thing, if it's a bad thing, if we can learn to find a middle ground, is that something you can offer a few thoughts on? Well, heck yeah! I don't, I don't think I can be wrong since, since you said I could take off my scientist cap and just uh, give you my opinion. Um, you know, I, I certainly ha- have a bias um, just because of who I am and how I'm made up and my interest. Um, I think back to an Aldo Leopold essay, uh, one of my most favorite. And it's called Think Like a Mountain. Yes. And Aldo's perspective was, you know, and there's so many nuances. I mean, it's just beautiful, just a beautiful essay. But but essentially, the the mountain needed the wolf because when when Aldo, you know, shot that last she wolf and saw the fire go out in that she wolf's eye, that the mountain subsequently suffered for that. And the deer population grew and took over the range. And, you know, he was really making a point there that predators are part of the system and predators are, are, are needed, you know, for, for, for a balanced ecosystem. So um, I really think, you know, and society at large, you know, and there's all sorts of different sides to this argument, but there's very compelling evidence for you need uh, in Yellowstone. You need to have some wolves. Uh, you need to have the predator. Um, one of my mentors years ago. I hope I can remember his famous quote. Said it so beautifully. Uh, one of my advisors when I was an undergraduate was Larry Marshington at the University of Georgia, and said the the predator needs the uh, the prey needs the predator, just like the predator needs the prey. If you take away the predator, uh, a deer becomes a cow, a wolf becomes a dog, and what does man become? <laughs> I don't know if I got that exactly right, but that's the part I could remember. And, I like that. and that thing really stuck with me that 
you know, we also play a predator. We play a predatory role with deer and and, uh, and other animals in, in the environments we live in. And so I think it's really important. I think it's important for the, the ecological integrity of, of the places we hunt and conserve that the predator should be part of the system. Now, without a doubt, uh, can they um, – can population levels get out of control? Absolutely. Uh, can humans coexist in some areas with some really large predators? Well, that's going to be really difficult. Uh, it'd be really difficult for um, mountain lions to be saturated, saturate the forests of Mississippi. You know, there, there are some of these really big predators that, that do uh, make it more difficult for us to coexist in terms of a, a human safety perspective. But in terms of a predator that may be limiting in some places the deer population by taking a few adult deer here and there and taking a few fawns here and there, you know, honestly, I'm just fine with that. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that, Bronson. I think that's a really a really helpful perspective to hear, especially from your from your experience set being involved in a lot of the a lot of the, the the data and numbers and research behind understanding these interactions both from that ecological perspective but then also from the social perspective how hunters and predators kind of sometimes clash sometimes can coexist that dynamic between these two sometimes competing um, parts of the system out there it, it causes a lot of turmoil at times but I think and again this is just my opinion but I think that it's it is important for us to find that way to coexist for all the reasons you just said and then also because and this is something that I've kind of again I've thought just from a pragmatic standpoint that if if we want to call ourselves conservationists if we want to like make this pitch to the outside world that we as hunters are good for conservation and we protect wildlife and do all these things. Um, if we just point to deer and say, Oh, we, we do that for deer, but we're not going to care at all about this other pocket of, of species. I think we lose some credibility there. And that's always been one of the things that if, if we care at all about how the rest of the, of the country looks at hunting and hunters and, and how we can go forward in the future. I think simply from that standpoint, it benefits us to learn to, to be conservationists for all species and animals and, and learn to think about these things as, as, a, as a larger integrated system. I think that's beneficial just from that standpoint too. Um, so I could not agree more. Could not agree more. Yeah, when I mean, you say integrated system, that, that's an ecosystem. And that, that's what we're supposed to preserve and, and protect and conserve and be a part of. Yeah. How do we keep the integrity of an ecosystem while we're a part of it? And, and predators are a part of it as well. Yeah. So, so to wrap this up, Bronson, I want to read to you um, a summary from a University of Georgia report that came out a year and a half or two years ago. Um, I think it kind of sums up a lot of what we've talked about really neatly, and I'd just like to read it. And then if you want to add anything or clarify anything, just so we can kind of wrap a bow on this for everyone, tell me if you agree with this too. Um, but the summary of this report says this, quote, White-tailed deer have multiple predators and individuals sometimes are killed by those predators. However, healthy deer herds can and do exist in places with abundant predators. Although it is easy to dismiss the role of predators as purely negative when regarding deer management, it's important to remember that predators are a natural and normal part of a healthy, well-managed ecosystem. To assume predators have no beneficial purpose in deer management is to ignore the facts. 
However, when predator populations become too abundant and affect deer management goals, an open discussion regarding the appropriate management action is justified. Predator reductions via trapping or shooting, habitat management, excuse me, habitat management, and or changes in deer harvest are all possible options that require careful and calculated review of available facts. The answer is not a landscape without predators. End quote. Does that kind of tie this all up, or do you disagree with anything there, or would you add anything? Uh, I think that was uh, appropriate and and beautiful. Yeah, I I could not agree or endorse that anymore. I think the they hit the nail on the head. Awesome. Well, yeah. Bronson, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk through all this with us, and I want to make sure to give you an opportunity to share with our audience where they can learn more from you, from what you guys are doing over the Deer Lab, any new projects you have, what what can you tell us, and, and where can we find some of this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed today. Um, so some things we have coming up. We are in the midst. We are halfway through a project that I can't wait to visit with you in the future about, uh, looking at the interaction of bucks and hunters. And... Uh, we're doing an experiment that was very similar to something Steve Damaris did in Oklahoma uh, about a decade ago, but we're looking at the response of bucks essentially to hunting pressure, how often they get disturbed, does it change their activity pattern, does it change where they spend time and how they spend time. And so we think that's going to be really, really insightful looking at that how hunters and level of hunting intensity is going to impact the, the deer herd. So we have that going on and we have some prescribed fire studies going on, looking at timing of fire and when is it most beneficial from a deer and wildlife perspective to burn uh, a lot of other projects like that. Um, we have a podcast that I would hope people would tune into and it's all about deer biology and deer management and science. And it's, it's less about hunting, but more about the nitty gritty of the things you probably put you to sleep when you were in high school biology. But <laughs> when we take those topics and kind of apply them to, to deer management and we try to take all the different questions and myths, you know, that people may talk about, you know, learning about the moon phase or, you know, learning about this particular plant or food plot. We just try to really scientifically, you know, evaluate all these types of topics and get that information out. Uh, something we did recently we're excited about. We, we wrote a book on a topic that is near and dear to our heart, Steve Damaris and, and myself, um, about buck management. And the name of the book is Strategic Harvest System, uh, How to Break Through the Buck Management Glass Ceiling. And so it's something – and that, uh, Mark, it might have been something you and I talked about last time about, you know, really how to manage the buck side of the deer herd, to, you know, to get you where you want to be. And that mm -hmm. is available on Amazon if anyone is interested in in that. Um I guess that is it for now. The the uh, our our website is msudeerlab.com. If someone was interested in that hunting app that we talked about for measuring fawn recruitment, we've got a page there with all of our apps that they can download and and are free to use. Awesome. Well, you guys are just putting out so many helpful resources. 
I highly recommend the Dear University podcast. I've really enjoyed it. You guys are doing a great job. I haven't got to check out the book yet, but I need to because I'm sure that's going to be just jam-packed with helpful information. So, Bronson, thanks for the work you guys are doing, and uh, thanks for sharing it with us here on the podcast. Anytime. Glad to help any way I can. All right, and that is the end of part one. Now, before we move on to part two, we need to take a quick break to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties who help make this podcast possible. And Whitetail Properties somewhat recently has started a really cool YouTube video series called The Land Beat. And on this series, they've got a whole bunch of different topics covered related to managing your property for whitetails and wildlife, sharing some really great information. Their most recent video is titled Planting Fruit Trees, in which they they talk through a bunch of ideas about planting and establishing fruit trees for wildlife on your property. They talk through the tools that you need, different tips to ensure that those trees survive. Um, Very interesting stuff. So I'd highly recommend heading over to the Whitetail Properties YouTube channel. Subscribe there and check out that Planting Fruit Trees video and look for many more of these to come. I hear that there's going to be a bunch more coming in the near future, so check them out, and you can also learn more at whitetailproperties.com. Now, back to the show. As I mentioned, our next guest is Carter Niemeyer. He's going to give us a wolf perspective when it comes to predators and hunter-human dynamics. Like I mentioned earlier, he's got an interesting and unique perspective, and uh, I think we can all learn a little bit from, uh, from that as well. So here we go. Hope you enjoy. All right, so with me now, and I'm really excited about this, is Carter Niemeyer. That's the right way to pronounce your, your last name, right? Niemeyer? That is correct. Perfect. And Carter, I read your book, Wolfer, a few years ago um, because I've always been interested, fascinated by wolves in general. Being an outdoorsman, a person that just loves wildlife and wild places, they've always been one of those animals that is just intriguing. They, To their detriment, maybe, they symbolize a lot. Um and so that was always interesting growing up, but then also as a hunter within my world and in this community, there's obviously a whole lot of negative energy around them too. So I've always been just interested in that dynamic and why there is this, these strong polarizing emotions around this animal from different, different communities. Um, in your book and your perspective for me was so refreshing because it seemed like you could approach this topic with a level of objectivity in logic that um, I could I could take in what you had to say and know that it seemed like there's no BS there because you've seen it from all sides. You approached it from a from a set of experiences that I think is pretty unique compared to most people that like to throw their hat in the ring when it comes to the wolf debate. Um, so I guess number one, thank you for taking the time to talk, and number two, rather than me try to butcher your history, I'd just love to hear from you. How did you get to this point? Um, can you give me a little bit of background, how you got involved with predators and then eventually into this whole wolf thing? Well, it's been a long story. It's turning out to be because I'm 71 years old now, so uh, we go way back. But uh, I got my first gun when I was nine and uh, started trapping foxes when I was a teenager and uh, grew up in northern Iowa uh, in a rural setting rural community and we had a little farm ourselves. so uh, that early hunting trapping fishing experience really made me an outdoorsman and uh, I, at 
some points, I think when I got a car, it was not to date girls. It was to go hunting and trapping. (laughs) So it it perked my interest enough that uh, when I got out of high school, I went to college, got a bachelor and master's degree at uh, Iowa State University in wildlife biology. And um, my first job, unexpected to me, was offered to me out in uh, northeast Montana, a little town called Plentywood. Um, I was offered the job on a Thursday. I accepted it on a Friday and hopped an Amtrak train on a Saturday and landed in Wolf Point, interesting name, uh, Montana, and was ready to go to work that next Monday. Um, That job was rabies suppression. It was catching skunks, uh, trying to suppress a rabies outbreak there because that's what I did my master's study on. It was serology study of rabies. And then uh, that job fizzled out, so I was a fur trapper that winter up in Plenty Wood, and I trapped uh, close to 400 fox and coyotes. Uh, prices were good then, and I did that to survive. And uh, my reputation began to grow, uh, and the agency called Wildlife Services um, thought, this guy likes to trap, we need a trapper. So my first job was uh, to actually be, well, Yes, I'm going to skip one part of my career and go straight to Dillon, Montana. And my job was to catch golden eagles that were preying on livestock down there. Um, So in one springtime period from uh, March to the 1st of June, I and another fellow trapped 149 golden eagles out of a township size area that were killing newborn lambs. Uh, All those eagles were banded, put in boxes, and we shipped them to Colorado, uh, northwest Montana, and some went to Yellowstone. Uh, We tried to break up that migration, disperse those birds, and uh, it didn't solve the problem, but it effectively uh, diminished the problem. How how do you catch a golden eagle? Uh, That's an excellent question. Um, We used coyote traps. Uh, the regular foothold traps, they were weakened traps, older traps, and we wrapped them with uh, sponge rubber weather stripping so that they were basically rubberized jaws. And then we uh, found newborn lambs that uh, the eagles were feeding on, and we also uh, killed white-tailed jackrabbits and uh, staked them to the ground and concealed these traps around these uh, dead rabbits and the dead lambs out in the fields. And the eagles would fly down uh, to scavenge, thinking that I'm eating something another eagle killed. Yeah. And they would step in that trap, uh, usually with a toe. And then they would just uh, lay out on the ground with their wings fanned out. And we would sit on a high ridge about a mile away. And every time you catch an eagle, we had several trap sites. Uh, The birds, once they were caught, would flop out on the ground, fan their wings out, and you would see this big dark circle on the ground. Uh, so we drive over, grab their feet, uh, put them in wooden boxes with a slide door, and uh, we kept them in log cabins, actually fed them uh, dead livestock, uh, rabbits, lambs. Uh, and every time we had about 15 in captivity, then they would go out on a shipment to Colorado or some direction, and we just kept doing that. Uh, until June come, and then the migration of eagles pretty much stopped. At the time, the government uh, 
was being pressured to give kill permits to ranchers to shoot all these eagles, but uh, that didn't happen. So we we trappers were the uh, alternative answer. Right. Can you describe what it is that Wildlife Services did or does now? Because I don't think a lot of people understand that. Yes, um, Wildlife Services, back when they hired me in 1975, uh, were called ADC or Animal Damage Control. Uh, so they went by that title, and then there was a name change. Uh, at that time, Animal Damage Control was within the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Department of Interior. Subsequently, it moved into the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and then the name was changed to Wildlife Services today. And um, it sounds somewhat sarcastic, but um, Wildlife Services are basically the hired gun of the livestock industry because most of our work, especially at that time, was responding to uh, reports of livestock being killed by uh, mostly coyotes, but also uh, eagles, black bears, grizzly bears, wolves, not so much wolves then, mountain lions. Mm -hmm. And uh, our agency would respond. There was about uh, a dozen trappers in the western part of Montana, about a dozen on the eastern portion of Montana. Uh, those trappers would assess the damage, determine what predator was involved, and then we would uh, remove the problem animal. And uh, with the exception of grizzly bears, uh, those and golden eagles, of course, uh, the predators were killed. Mm -hmm. And um, wildlife services still exist today, and they, uh, it varies from state to state what they do. Um, some of these western states like Montana, Wyoming, Idaho are, are heavy into uh, killing coyotes and removing problem bears, lions, wolves. Uh, you get into states like Washington and Oregon, it could be pigeon control, you know, feral pigeons on buildings or under bridges. Uh, it could be protecting salmon smolt from uh, different kinds of uh, bird predators. Um, a big project of wildlife services nowadays, too, is uh, helping out uh, airports, national, international size airports, to reduce bird strikes where birds right. get in front of jet aircraft could kill everybody on board. That's a big project. And then uh, more and more, uh, like take the state of Texas, they've got an estimated 4 million plus feral hogs. So wildlife services down there have, they're still hunting predators, native predators, but they're also uh, trying to reduce the feral pig population. And uh, so they're very diversified yeah. and they exist in many states from here to the East Coast, uh, to the South and uh, whatever is a unique situation or problem with nuisance animals in those states, uh, wildlife services adapt their programs to those needs. So, uh, so then after the Golden Eagles, then for you, what was next? Where'd you go from there? Well, I guess I did such a good job. They made me a district supervisor. So I, uh, essentially became a, uh, 20 some year old supervisor over a bunch of 50 year old seasoned government trappers. And, um, pretty much uh, help them line out what they were going to do or what I wanted them to do. So um, 
it took it, it taught me a lot of finesse at a very young age how to get a bunch of ordinary old guys old enough to be your dad to listen to you and and do what you asked and and so along those lines too um, i got involved in a lot of uh, problem grizzly bear uh, management and because i was the college boy the college educated uh iowegian a lot of those old guys called me um i was kind of the technical guy with the dart gun and the drugs uh those trappers preferred not to know what a milligram a milliliter sure or uh was so bring carter down so when uh, we had a problem grizzly we would set foot snares catch the grizzly and i would be the dart man to knock the bear down uh never killed a single grizzly during my tenure we put them all in a culvert trap and turned them over to the state uh, who relocated them or took some up in Canada and relocated them. And then uh, that was pretty much my responsibility. I, I spent a lot of time, too, uh, directing the uh, state of Montana. had three helicopters uh, devoted entirely to killing coyotes. So my job, too, was to make sure those helicopters were cycled around to the trappers and that everyone was prepared and did their homework and knew where they wanted to hunt coyotes and I pulled a fuel trailer for them at that time we skinned coyotes saved the pelts sold them put in the fuel fund and yeah uh, and then uh, that uh, that was pretty much my career until about mid-1980s when suddenly gray wolves started coming across the border from Canada and showing up in the North Fork of the Flathead uh, around Glacier and on the Blackfoot Indian Reservation. And that's where I became acquainted with gray wolves, which yeah. were never on my radar before that. So can you, you've got a whole book worth of knowledge about this whole experience that I encourage people to read called Wolfer. Um, but can you give us the Cliff Notes version of what happened from that point when those gray wolves started coming down across the border? to the point where reintroduction happened and what your involvement was through that process. Yeah, so the, the recolonization um, where wolves were just crossing the border on their own started uh, around 1985-86. And uh, from that point forward, we had uh, wolf packs pop up uh, west of Kalispell, Montana, and then down the Nine Mile uh, just outside of uh, Missoula. And a pack showed up just west of Helena, Montana. So they were coming down on their own. And um, my job at the time, you know, we had no no budget, we had no experience, and we had no field equipment, uh, you know, traps to, to capture wolves. And during that time, I uh, inadvertently darted a wolf from a helicopter, which had never been done in the mm -hmm. lower 48, to my knowledge. So I became Carter the darter. <laughs> and pretty much was the go-to guy to do the all of that early wolf capture work, either with foothold traps or with uh, the helicopter uh, when there was a problem, and then uh, even started helping the uh, agencies, you know, collar them just to start counting them and keep track of the packs. And if I could interrupt you real fast before you go any further, at this point in your in your life, in your career, what were you, what did you think about wolves? Like, what was your feelings about wolves being back in america were you approaching it from like ah crap these guys are back this is trouble or were you just interested in them or what'd you think um uh, i was fascinated with wolves uh never had one negative thought about a wolf uh i felt privileged 
to be the guy to actually start looking at the the wolf problem that was perceived and to be the get go-to guy to go out and and examine livestock and see what uh what the wolves did if they did kill them indeed so no uh i've never had really a negative thought toward wolves ever um i was fascinated and then i think uh after that, I just developed a, a tremendous respect for the animal, an admiration, and uh, it went from there. And, and, of course, you have to remain objective always. And uh, so there's a lot of tough times when you catch this beautiful wolf and look in its eyes and think, uh, what a cool animal, and later uh, either recover its body or someone had killed it or in some cases later in my career, I had to go out and be the trigger man and kill him myself. And yeah. So uh, you you have to accept that. Um, but one of the things I guess I learned or taught myself was to be objective and not to be biased and not to have predetermined um, perceptions of what was going on. Uh, I always compare it to being in law enforcement. You know, the guy carrying the badge, you collect evidence. Uh, you're not to judge and jury. You just collect evidence and present it to a judge and jury. And that's what my job became more and more was looking at more and more dead livestock because as wolves received publicity, more people started looking at that dead cow in the field through a different set of eyes, you know, and, uh, and different lenses. Uh, and so I started really learning a lot about forensics because I <laughs> skinned out these animals and would look for injuries that uh, were caused by predation versus injuries caused by accidents. And then you're also looking for lightning strikes, uh, birthing problems. Um, so you like can I've tell. Said before, the national statistics, uh, you know, about 5% of livestock die from predation causes. So 95% of them are dying from all kinds of possibilities. Yeah. So how do you know that a, that an animal was killed by a wolf? What are those telltale signs that you looked for to determine whether or not this was actually a wolf? Well, the key is you need to have someone find that carcass as soon as possible. But we're looking for trauma. And trauma uh, is usually revealed with hemorrhage, a lot of profuse bleeding, means the animal was alive, there was blood pressure at the time, and that something happened to this animal. But again, uh, predation can resemble gunshot wounds, just so people can imagine what it looks like. So it remain, re, uh, it's important to remove the skin from the animal and, you know, is it a gunshot or are these tooth punctures? Or did this animal run into a fence post? Did it get impaled on an irrigation pipe. Uh, there's so many possibilities, but every predator has a signature, I call it. Uh, wolves kill uniquely compared to how a mountain lion kills, compared to how a grizzly bear kills, compared to eagles using talons. So you have to become familiar with those signatures and look at where the injuries occur. Cougars attack a lot at the neck, throat area, uh, might inflict some uh, claw marks where they hang on to the victim. 
Uh, bears are dorsal attack. They come over the shoulders, over the back, uh, bite down on their prey. Even a thousand pound Hereford will be bitten over the shoulders and over the top of the neck by a, a grizzly bear, for instance. And uh, wolves attack laterally and from behind. Wolves try to get their prey running and then they t attack from the side and behind. And so 99% uh, of the wolf attack uh, injuries will be revealed uh, under the legs, under the front legs, the armpit or whatever you want to call it, uh, in the groin areas uh, around the soft belly and uh, downward, say, where the udder is. And then a lot of bite wounds occur along what they call the hamstrings, you know, from the genitals down the back of the hind leg. So... Uh, once you do this for a long time, uh, it, you can pretty quickly determine what you're working with. And then all these other causes of death often result in no trauma. you got an animal laying there dead, not a mark on it. <laughs> and again, uh, I'm not a veterinarian by training, but when the rancher would allow me, we would you know, open up that animal. We'd skin it, say, there, well, there's no predation involved. So you go inside and, and they die of ulcers and uh, issues internally, pneumonia. And talk to any veterinarian and ask them how many bacteria and viruses kill livestock. And <laughs> you couldn't learn it in a lifetime. So uh, I'm looking for hemorrhage. That tells me that there's some trauma here which overlaps what predation would appear to be. Okay. So you're, you're darting animals. You're starting to track these animals that are coming down into Montana. You're checking on livestock predation, trying to understand, are these wolf kills? Are they not? What, what happens from there? Well, when, when uh, predators are not involved, sometimes that's a tough pill to swallow because a lot of people form opinions and have all the answers before you get there. Their mind's made up. And when you say, I'm sorry, but predation, we can't confirm that happened here. And then you, if you kill, you try to find an explanation for them, which included, you know, put the, uh, put the cow in the back of my government truck. I'll take it to your vet. You need. So I, I refer them to their veterinarians. When I say it's not predation, if you really think you might have black leg or mm -hmm. scours, Go to, go to an expert on that field. Yeah. Uh, if predation was involved uh, early on, we didn't kill wolves. We relocated them. So uh, uh, summertime, especially using foothold traps, uh, we catch those wolves, move them to a less problem area. Early on, it was up in Glacier Park. It was politically expedient. Every wolf we got our hands on turned loose alive at a radio collar so that we could... Uh, keep track of where that wolf is, mm -hmm. what it did, and some of those were repeat offenders. Uh, until about 2002, we'd relocated 117 approximately uh, problem wolves. Uh, required not killing them. Yeah. After about 2002, uh, no more relocations. At least Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, we started killing the offenders. Yeah. So... Where where did the the idea of actually reintroducing wolves then to these different parts a little farther south? Where did that begin? What what happened and how did you get pulled into that? Because the, the wolves were already coming down. 
I imagine, as you were saying, there was already some uh, some controversy around that. Probably there were people upset about it. Maybe some people were excited about it. But then there started to be this rise of interest in, in bringing them back to places like Yellowstone. Um, can you can you get us to that point, catch us up on that, and then how you got pulled into all of it? Okay, well, again, realizing that I worked with the U.S. Department of Agriculture Wildlife Services at the time, and I was taking on these wolf responsibilities, um, I was having to coordinate with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who were the management authority over wolves, whether they lived or died. So um, it really wasn't any of my decision at the time to be part of those discussions. But back in the late 60s, early 70s, there was talk about recovering wolves. So there was a lot of research done, a lot of field time where uh, biologists went out and surveyed and looked for wolves in the lower 48 states. Uh, and then uh, to fast forward, about 1994 is when the discussions accelerated about talking about wolf reintroduction, and I was sort of hearing about it myself, and I was in meetings where it was discussed. But uh, they wrote an environmental impact statement then, and I say they, it was the U.S. Fish and Wildlife mm -hmm. Service. So at that time, I was sort of swept up in this movement because uh, I was a review member of the EIS team uh, representing wildlife services uh, who and we sort of represented the livestock growers. So I was privy to the discussions and when this EIS was written at that point there were conditions that if a viable wolf pack was found before the reintroduction actually occurred, that they weren't going to do it. But the surveys, the counting, the looking, the searching did not confirm any viability, any breeding activity in Idaho, Wyoming, Montana. Were there wolves here? Absolutely. There were single individuals running around. People seen them. They were videoed. And those wolves were from Canada because we exterminated wolves in these states by the 1940s. So these weren't progeny of some pre-existing population. Uh, the fact that no viability was recognized or identified, the reintroduction occurred beginning in 1995 and 1996. Uh, first year, the wolves were captured at Hinton, Alberta, which is just east of Jasper Park. Second year, they came from Fort, Fort St. John, British Columbia, Canada. Uh, caught in a region west of a little place called Pink Mountain on the Alaska Highway. I was part of the capture team in helicopters who went up to get those wolves. Again, I was working for USDA Wildlife Services, but the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service borrowed me and covered my uh, cost and salary while I worked kind of as a contractor for them. So that's how I got involved in the actual um, reintroduction. So, so the story that we hear a lot, um, especially maybe in the hunting community where there is some animosity around the, re the return of wolves, even today you still hear that uh, when the government went and got these wolves to reintroduce, they found these super wolves up in Canada. There were these big monsters that weren't anything like the wolves that were down in America beforehand. You were literally one of the guys that was up there 
bringing these cap trapping these wolves and bringing them down so can you tell me the, these weren't super wolves right well, no, and, and and let's back up. I mean, I keep hearing these testimonies about these wolves are different than the ones that were here. I don't know anyone living that saw the wolves that lived here. You had to be alive before 1940, and you had to be alive up until the reintroduction yeah. from the 1940s. Weren't very many people like that. There were a few. Uh, there's people tell me, well, I have some of the original wolf pelts from the original wolves. Well... That's fine and dandy. I'm not going to argue that. But what really went into the planning was that the wolves that were selected to be reintroduced, the only source was Canada. And you needed wolves that recognized moose, deer, and elk as prey species. So you don't want to run up to Alaska and bring down a bunch of caribou hunters, you know, or uh, go to Minnesota and bring a bunch of uh, wolves that hunt deer white-tailed deer or whatever. So the, the attempt was to bring down a wolf that was closest to this area. And as I talked about in a seminar today, um, through radio collaring, it's obvious that the wolves in Canada have no barrier, like a fence or a moat or something, to keep wolves from Canada coming into the lower 48. They always have been. The problem was from 1940 till 1995, with a few exceptions along the border, we were killing them because there's old news articles, people finding wolves dead in their field, usually a gunshot, a rifle shot in the side, or perhaps somebody flew over them in an airplane hunting coyotes and shot them in the back with BBs. Um, it wasn't till we broke that gauntlet by actually airlifting wolves into the lower 48 and releasing them here, did enough wolves get to the same vicinity to go ahead and breed and actually, uh, you know, become viable. Yeah. And uh, we achieved our objectives over 300 wolves for three consecutive years, equitably distributed over Idaho, Wyoming, Montana. We reached that uh, goal by 2002, that soon after the reintroduction in 95 and 96 to show you how prolific and resilient wolves are. Yeah. So like you, like you've said, we essentially exterminated wolves across America by the forties because of long spread kind of campaign against predators for, for so long as we expanded our own populations across the West. Um, some people today would say that we did that for good reason, that, you know, they shouldn't be on the landscape because of the trouble to livestock, because of the trouble to hunters and wildlife populations and whatnot. So some people are saying it was a good thing. And then you have other people that look at it and, and look at that as a travesty, uh, taking an entire species off of a landscape, a, a place that it, that it belongs, been for tens of thousands of years, millions of years maybe. Um, so when you got involved in this, obviously there was a lot of noise on either side of that spectrum. You were right there in the middle of it, actually hands-on, what were your feelings at that point about the idea of reintroducing them? Did you feel like, did you have a strong opinion? Um, at the time, all of this uh, reintroduction being discussed, um, I don't know if I had an opinion, but I thought it was a cool idea. And gray wolves are native to this, to our lower 48 states. And I thought, what a cool idea to bring back a native species and put it here. 
And uh, I guess being real honest was when I heard this team was forming, I wanted to be on it. Uh, it was it was historical. It never been done, may never ever be done again. But um, I have no remorse or whatever you want to call it about being part of it. I think it was a decision the country made at the time. Um, I don't know exactly, but I think comments and letters and uh, assemble all these comments came in on the environmental impact statement. I think we're talking around a quarter of a million wow. comments. And the decision was made. Certainly wasn't my decision. But uh, the sun, moon, stars, and constellations and the politics all lined up uniquely at that time during those couple of years, and it happened. And certainly a lot of people resentful of it happening. Uh, people dislike wolves, but they dislike federal government uh, as much or more. I've heard people say, you know, uh, I don't like wolves, but I hate the government biologists that brought them here, you know. So <laughs> there's this... Uh, feeling that exists yeah can you talk about that dynamic that was especially present at that point because it seems like like you just said there was there was a lot of negativity towards the the wolf but then it also seemed like a lot of the hate was towards the fact that the government was forcing wolves on people that some people that didn't want it um can you talk about that what was going on there too yeah well i'll just kind of give you my viewpoint uh, uh through the situation that existed is that the wolves that were going to be reintroduced needed vast open spaces, low human presence, uh, and low livestock numbers, and recognize available prey like deer, elk, and moose. Um, the Frank Church and Yellowstone, were it was decided by scientists above me, a different pay grade, that those locations fit the bill. And let's go back to talking about public land, vast amounts of public land in the West. They don't belong to people just because you live in Idaho doesn't mean it's your public land. It belongs to everybody in the country. Mm -hmm. That's the way I've always looked at public land. Um, the public spoke. The public, uh, the majority, you can argue, but the percentages were higher to do it than to not do it. And I'll give ranchers and rural folks a benefit that they were probably outnumbered, outgunned, and outpoliticked at the time because this was so new to everybody that uh, the resistance, you might say, wasn't organized to push back any harder. <laughs> so the to go with the flow, it happened. And there's a lot of resentments because in there has been tremendous number of lawsuits, you know, over listing and delisting and back and forth. The wolves been uh, on the list and off the list. And uh, as you get more groups and more attorneys involved and, and more hindsight, there's, I think, still these resentments that, gosh, if we'd have just done it this way and they'd have listened to us, you know, this wouldn't have happened. And scientists at the time, I mean, very prominent scientists, uh, including uh, wolf people, were opposed to it. 
because they said, wow, it's just going to create so much negativity. Why don't we just wait them out, let them come down on their own? There's people who believe that would have happened. Maybe it would have, maybe it wouldn't have. Um, I think piecemeal they would have come, but it had been very, very slow. But we were killing wolves back in 1987. As soon as it started showing up, we were already killing them. Uh, to say that if we'd have just let them come in on their own, we could have lived with that. It's really not true because even when they were under the full protection of the Endangered Species Act, there was paperwork permitting us to kill endangered wolves. So in the reintroduction, they were uh, introduced as uh, experimental non-essential wolves, which meant there was a lot more flexibility built in. And there has been because uh, uh, the numbers are so dynamic moving along, but we've killed about a wolf for every cow or calf that's been killed, you know, domestic animals. Um, so control has always been on the table and it's always been applied where wolves have been a problem. Yeah. So the, the wolf introduction happens in 95, like you said, in Yellowstone, the Frank Church. Now, you know, over the course of the next 20 years, the, the wolves did wonderfully from their perspective. They've reproduced, they've spread out, they've dispersed. They're now, you know, present in states like Washington and Oregon and now recently Northern California. There's been some spotted in Nevada. They're, they're dispersing all over the place. They seem to be doing, doing pretty well from a biological perspective, from the species perspective. But then you hear all these stories from people, whether it be hunters or livestock producers, who talk about all the negative impacts that these wolves have had. Um, they talk about decimated wildlife populations, the elk herds destroyed in certain regions. You hear about how they're hammering their calves and their sheep and different things like this. And I'm sure those things were being talked about in 95 and 96, and they're still being talked about in 2018. Um, but you've been on the ground. You've been going to check on these scenes. You've had to kill some wolves. You've had to tell some livestock producers this wasn't a wolf you've, you've actually been there you actually have seen what the impacts have or have not been so what have those impacts been in reality not the stories and the conspiracy theories but what has the real impact been well uh, the EIS addressed all of the possibilities and the main issues in the EIS was if it happened to address human health and safety, pets, livestock, big game, ungulates, uh, things like that. Um, since the reintroduction in the lower 48 states, nobody's been killed by wolves. Um, there's some stories going around. I call them anecdotal. Um, they need to be documented better if we're to believe them. But uh, been only two humans killed in the 21st century. Both of them... Uh, occurred north of the border, uh, one in Canada, one in Alaska, where um, there's 65,000 wolves estimated to live. Um, to talk about livestock loss, there has been some livestock loss. It's not across the board. Uh, most ranchers have not had to deal with it. Certain individuals have. Uh, it's been taken serious. Wolves have been killed in, in, uh, to correct the problems. Uh, since then, too, there's compensation for ranchers to offset some of the costs. Uh, but 
progressive ranchers are taking it seriously and watching their livestock closer. And I think it's essential that people recognize that wolves aren't going to go away, that, that they can be a threat to livestock. Then you get into this two-pronged um, discussion over private land versus public land. Um, if people, I don't mean it in a negative way, but if, if private landowners want to come in with napalm and kill every predator on their place, be my guest. Um, I, I'm not going to fight that individual rights issue on your private property. But I think to be killing native predators, of which wolves are native, on public lands, uh, we got to look at that a lot closer and that it's just not that simple. Um, their impact on big game animals like elk, I would have to contradict anyone who said that wolves are having a negative impact on elk overall. Now, we can pick certain zones and certain districts in certain parts, uh, say Idaho. There are some places where it's a habitat problem, always has been. Uh, Northern Idaho had a catastrophic fire back in 1910 that created some spectacular elk habitat, and uh, there were some years that elk hunting was fabulous, I am told. It was before my time. Since then, those catastrophic fire areas have grown back, and they're not as productive as they used to be. Um, there's other parts of Idaho and pretty much the states of Wyoming and Montana who are seeing tremendous elk herds uh, over management objectives. Um, Montana has too many elk. It's been out there in the newspaper more than once. Hunter excess is the problem more so than anything. It's not wolves killing elk. It's that the herd of elk have doubled in over 20 years, but the hunters can't get at them because much of the land is being sold and, and different ownership and all that. So uh, in Idaho, I believe uh, 2015 set a new white-tailed deer harvest record. Uh, and Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, all have been having record or near-record elk harvests, uh, especially peaking in like tw around 2015, which tells me uh, 2,000 wolves or more on the landscape. Uh, we've got good elk herds and good deer herds and hunter success. Uh, some states like Idaho, you know, maybe one out of 400 is successful. In Wyoming, it's one out of 200 successful. So you can't convince me right now, and I think anybody who's a hunter and is being honest uh, we'll have to admit that times are pretty darn good if you like to hunt big game. And it seems like, and tell me if this is true, but I've heard, you know, right after the reintroduction in those areas specifically where wolves have been gone for a long time and now they're back, that at first these prey populations, they didn't know that that was a danger yet. So it was easy pickings for the wolves. And so you did see some maybe drastic reductions in those populations outside of Yellowstone and some of those regions. But relatively quickly, I imagine those elk herds started realizing when you see a furry-legged 90-pound dog running towards you, you go head the other direction real quick. And you, they started changing where they, you know, where they fed, where they bedded. They started becoming like elk again, what real elk had been like for thousands and thousands of years beforehand. And now you're seeing a lot of these places you're hearing and seeing about these elk populations rebounding and getting, you know, right back up there to pretty high levels. Maybe not pre 
wolf levels exactly in some of these regions, but very healthy. That's what I've been hearing. Um, is that what's been happening in most of these places, that there's been a kind of rebound effect? Prey, deer, elk have figured out, okay, yeah, we can adapt to living with wolves. Yeah, and I think most areas, the wolves and elk have adapted to each other, you know, more through a natural uh, getting used to one another. I'm going to talk outside of Yellowstone. But what we have nowadays, too, is that elk are thriving in many parts of, of Idaho, Wyoming, Montana because of irrigated pastures, grassland, alfalfa fields, uh, lawns. Um, there's, a, you know, people are trying to, there's people who are of the opinion that all those elk are down in these fields because the wolves won't let them go back to the mountains. But a lot of these elk herds don't want to go back very far in the mountains because when you got grazing and forage like they have down here, why would you want to go up there? So that, that that's one of the issues. Um, mentioning Yellowstone being that, that beautiful laboratory to study wolves, um, there were about an estimated 19,000 elk in Yellowstone at the time of the reintroduction. And that herd diminished quickly over these 20 years down to around, you know, between four and 5,000 elk. Um, that has been the example by people who are anti-wolf, basically. So look what they did to the elk in Yellowstone. Well, you got to factor in grizzly bears, caribou. you got to factor in drought. Uh, you got to factor in forage conditions in the park. There was a lot of things at work, including wolves. But for those interested, if they check with scientists in Yellowstone Park this year, the 2018 report just come out, it's a good report. Elk from a year ago's estimate and counts are up 42%. They're showing an increase now. Uh, we're talking over 7,000 elk counted. They're on the way up. And what have the wolves done? When the wolves were reintroduced in Yellowstone, their population peaked at about 172 wolves for a while. Through no hunting and trapping or predator control in the park, that population has diminished to about 100 wolves, plus or minus now. So the wolf population has plateaued and come back to a sort of balance with the available prey and the prey are on the increase. And that's reflected by what's going on outside the park in many parts of, uh, especially Montana and Wyoming, but uh, I know regions of uh, Idaho around this Boise country uh, going east and going north of here. Um, elk numbers are, are doing well, I guess. They're yeah. maintaining and increasing. Do hunters need to worry there's a lot of people in different parts of the country where wolves are coming into the country again, or there's places like in the upper Great Lakes where the wolf populations are still listed and they're kind of expanding in places like that. And there's, there's some like fear. And, and I, th I feel like lots of times wolves or coyotes are the easy thing to point a finger at because it's, it's big, it's charismatic. There's all this, I don't know, cultural stuff stigma around these animals and so it's really easy when something's not going well for you as a hunter or you're not seeing animals or whatever it might be that is a really easy thing to say ah, it's got to be that or i saw one and since i've been hearing them we haven't seen the deer or elk or whatever it is um can you speak to your experiences with predators and 
being a hunter yourself, do we need to be worried about predators? Can we coexist as hunters with predators? How do we do that? How do we think about that? Well, my opinion, and from uh, over 30 years experience in the field, um, it's undoubtable we can live with predators. It's Here's one of the reactions of just like killing coyotes, you know, and the government got involved over 100 years ago in uh, removing coyotes because they're a problem and uh, they're vermin, whatever you want to call them. They're a nuisance. They kill livestock. Um, Coyotes, the more you persecute them, actually you benefit them. I mean, you're, you, you're trying to kill them off for whatever reason, from retaliation and vengeance to just being practical that they're a problem. Uh, those coyotes react to that. You lower the coyote density, you actually make the surviving coyotes healthier because it frees up some food that their competitors were eating. Um, the females get good nourishment, so they have maybe bigger litters of pups. And because of the available food, uh, the more pups survive. And on a scale with wolves, you know, wolves require 250, 300 square miles for a territory. Similar things happen with wolves. You go in and you kill them for whatever justification you have. Um, you can break up those wolf packs. You can actually cause them to disperse sooner than they would. And recognize, recognizing again, whether you're talking foxes, coyotes, wolves, or any species for the most part, when you empty out an area, create a vacuum, nature abhors a vacuum, and animals of that species outside that area you, you just uh, cleaned out start moving in. So to me, it's senseless to think somehow that eradicating predators is going to solve uh, the problem. Um, but now if you want to hunt coyotes and wolves recreationally, um, you can justify that and it's legal. Um, that's the way it is. Um, that's sport. That's recreation. That's called trophy hunting because I don't think many people take fox and coyotes home and eat them. So. Um, as long as state management agencies see this surplus, that we have a viable population of wolves or coyotes or whatever, um, and they provide very liberal seasons for people to hunt and trap them, uh, I guess that's the way it is, even though uh, many in society don't understand or accept that. Mm -hmm. What have you learned um, from your experiences with livestock producers or hunters or other parties that have been opposed to predators coming back into the area. Um, have we, have we learned anything that we can apply to how we manage this in the future? So whether it be managing predator populations or the balance between predator and wildlife and hunters, maybe I should rephrase it. What's your vision for the future? What's the best way to do this better in the future? Well, I guess, again, if you're a rancher, um, do your homework. Recognize if you've got wolves in your backyard or wolves moving into the neighborhood, you're going to have to be more vigilant. Uh, I think any businessman, regardless of the business you run, you have to know your risks. Um, and the state management agencies have been pretty liberal 
as were the federal managers too, that uh, when wolves were determined to be a problem, they were removed. But I think more and more as a society, we are also putting the burden on, on say the rancher, for instance, that since you raise livestock and, and many of you use public lands in the West as part of your grazing scheme, then um, you're gonna have to be a little more tolerant of them. So we're right at a kind of a stage uh, in, at this point that we got to recognize wolves are socially and legally protected and managed now. They're not going to go away and, and a smart businessman will adapt and uh, perhaps you're going to have to put a range rider or a cowboy out there with them and be more vigilant. Uh, and on a smaller scale, maybe it's you know, fencing, a flattery ribbon. I mean, there's a whole list of these non-lethal ways. But I think most of all, uh, it's keeping an eye on your livestock. Um, I work with some colleagues in Canada who are taking care of some pretty large uh, cow-calf pair units and keeping predation very low. But it takes work and commitment to do that. Um, I know a lot of people don't accept my suggestions there. Um, otherwise, um, you can hunt them and trap them and kill them and persecute them, uh, but long as it's within the contained within the legal hunting, trapping, uh, snaring and uh, regulated seasons, um, I think the wolves are, when I talk about viability, I think they're pretty much replacing themselves after the killing has happened and they have pups in the spring they're pretty much replacing their numbers here from what I see. Yeah, and I've heard a lot, there's been a lot of studies done more in the eastern United States around coyotes and trying to manage them and a lot of people trying to manage for other wildlife species and understanding the impact the coyotes have on fawns or different things like that. And a lot of times they find that, that really, unless you do a whole scale eradication via some kind of trapping program at a specific time, you know, just the occasional, you know, some of the guys will say, I'll shoot every coyote I see when I'm out hunting because of, you know, they're killing my fawns or something. Um, but to your early, earlier point, science has shown that doesn't really make any impact at all <laughs> because they just come right back in, their litters increase. Um, in many cases, it seems like the smarter way to manage that situation is maybe to, A, learn to live with this coexistence with another predator species and then in some areas where you have like private landowners and stuff there's things you can do to improve habitat to help provide a better situation for fawns so that you know that you can do the the uh the prey dumping kind of i think overload where there's so many fawns on the landscape at one time and there's good fawning habitat then the coyotes might not necessarily kill as many fawns so there's little things that you can do that to learn to to live with predators but still achieve whatever goals you might have as a hunter or manager, different things like that, that seem to be maybe more effective pragmatically than just shooting or persecuting this other animal that you think is competing with you for the animal you want to see or shoot yourself or whatever it might be. Um, well, when we went to college, you know, we're, you know, we talk, we're taught about biological carrying capacity and that's uh, with the water, habitat, food, you know, whether you're talking ringneck pheasants or coyotes or wolves, there's so much space, so much food, so much water that they require to be at their maximum density. 
And so that's the biological carrying capacity. Uh, now we've gone to social carrying capacity to manage wolves as an example. Uh, we're talking about human tolerance now. Um, absent humans here, I mean absent humans in Idaho, uh, absent humans killing wolves in Idaho, there's not a doubt in my mind that wolves would plateau at a certain number in relationship to the available food base, you know, the deer and the elk, whether you hunted or trapped them or did anything. We're not going to, we're just never going to get there, I don't think, as humans, because no one's willing to risk it, accept it, and the, and the state agencies who manage them are, they look at, we have enough wolves, we can kill this many, uh, and long as we stay above this threshold, we can do this. And that's our culture. That's the tradition, you know, with hunting and harvesting the surplus that we're going to keep doing that. But, uh, yeah, I, I just think that um, it's futile if you think you're controlling them. I mean, all you can do really is reduce them in areas and, and target problems and deal with that. But going back into my predator control career, uh, there's two concepts. There's corrective control and preventative control. Corrective control is when uh, you have, say, two coyotes killing someone's sheep, and you go in and you kill those two coyotes. You've corrected the problem. The problem's over. You go home um, and no more work to be done. But preventative control is always going on, which is if there's a coyote out there and he's alive, he might eat a sheep. So we used to send up the gunships all winter and shoot every coyote we could shoot wherever we had agreements to fly. And that's still going on in parts of Idaho, Wyoming, Montana. And uh, then throw in sport or recreational hunting and trapping of wolves. There is that attempt to socially adjust the carrying capacity downward so that Wolves won't be a problem to ranchers. Wolves aren't going to be a problem killing uh, an excessive number of big game animals that hunters want to pursue. So, uh, but, that's, but that's the way the system's working and has worked and probably will continue to. Although there's people out there trying to uh, attack, that, um, attack that culture, that mentality mm -hmm. and trying to get everyone to look at wolves and coyotes in a, they're a social, they're a family group. Uh, you're breaking up a family and you're not letting that family function ecologically like they could if humans didn't interfere. Right. It, it's funny with wolves. I think it was either you or whoever introduced you earlier today during the seminar said that wolves are often looked at as either a, uh, a devil or a deity or a sinner or a saint. I mean, it's, it's one thing or the other. People worship them as this bigger than anything type of thing or it's the worst type of evil these animals are are evil killing the poor helpless deer they do these like uh rage killings where they kill a bunch of animals just out of lust um you hear all these these polarized two opposite ideas or on the other side you hear about these loving families of animals that have special personalities and we can't you know we can't break up the family and daughters and sons and, and they humanize these animals in these different ways. And um, I think there's a middle ground where you can look at these <laughs> things as, a, as, a, as an animal, a really yep. unique, interesting 
to be respected and appreciated animal, but also something that that's part of this larger ecosystem that we as humans are now a part of too. And we have for a very, very long time, we've been a part of that food chain. Um, well, humanity has become a giant footprint on the globe. Yeah. And uh, predators especially are in a world of hurt in a lot of places in the world. And um, so I enjoy predators. I just, um, I'm, I'm not a predator killer anymore. I, there was a time in my life when I did that. And now um, I would rather go out and locate a pack of wolves and set up on a ridge with a spotting scope and watch them mm -hmm. and just enjoy them. Same way seeing a mountain lion run across the road or watching black bears you know, grazing in the spring up on the grassy slopes. That, that's where I'm at. And uh, there's a time when, like I say, they're, they're legal to hunt and trap um, or kill predators. As long as it's legal and you got a tag, go for it. Yeah. Um, but it boils down to individual choices. We have this huge impact, and um, I just pick and choose. I, I still hunt, and I... My wife and I eat elk meat, so that's what I hunt. Pretty much not hunting all these other things anymore because two people can only eat so much. Yeah. I, I've, I, 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 as we've talked about, I've always been fascinated by wolves too, um, but I also recognize the, the right to hunt them now and, and state-level management to maintain sustainable populations. I think that's, I think that's great and, and worthy, and, and I understand the, the need in places to do some of the things that are done, but at the same time, you know, I've never had this. Um, I, I've never had the desire to, to kill a wolf. That's one of those animals that I think I would be more like what you just described there where if, or if I saw one, I would just want to watch it. Uh, nothing against someone who does want to hunt that animal because I've hunted plenty of other animals and I've enjoyed that and I, I get it. Um, but Eldo Leopold, you know, the great conservationist and wilderness advocate and, and game manager and philosopher of sorts, he, he had this experience back in the 20s when he was down in New Mexico as a young Forest Service um, ranger of sorts. And he, at the time, believed that the more wolves you killed, the more deer there would be in the landscape. So he thought, shoot every wolf you see. And he has this famous essay, maybe maybe you're familiar with it, um, called Thinking Like a Mountain, where he, he shoots this wolf and he walks up to it and he said he saw the green fire in its eyes die. And he realized that all those preconceived notions he had, he, he realized that... And he had trigger itch. Yeah, he had trigger itch. Yeah. And he realized that he'd been wrong and something died there. And, and he realized that something that only now the mountain knew was was lost um he had this kind of epiphany and then from there he he started to look at things a little bit differently um the predators can also be part of this this system that we are a part of too um you have killed wolves you have been a part of that you've you've walked up to a dead wolf um what has that what's that like is there some is that a powerful moment even for you having been involved with all of these things yes because i've um Personally, you know, my my uh, capture record is I've caught myself at, or in, uh, since I'm in control of the situation or the person in charge, I've caught 300 wolves. And you might say had them on life support. We check temperature, pulse, respiration. We have drugs, mobilizing drugs, uh, keeping them alive to put a collar on them, take some measurements. 
when you do that with 300 live animals, as beautiful as wolves are, um, I have lost any desire to kill one. So when I see one killed or I see videos of them being shot or whatever, um, I can imagine that it's a rush for somebody who hasn't been around that before and that, uh, you know, a wolf is beautiful, I want it for a trophy, or a wolf is, I mean, he's got big fangs and, uh, uh, you know, he's a dangerous animal and my buddies are going to really look up to me dealing with it. I look at wolves as, you know, they're, they're the source of our domestic dogs. They're just a big dog, but they're wild and untamed and... Um, so, yeah, to me, it's, it's a bummer, anticlimactic, uh, a job I had to do when I was killing them uh, as a result of livestock damage, something like that. And I choose, as a sportsman, I could not possibly get any enjoyment out of, uh, you know, and I, I've killed a couple mountain lions in my life, and I found that anticlimactic. I've killed a few black bear early on when I first got to the west you know got to get a bear got to get a lion got to get a wolf or whatever the feeling people have when it's something new um, but I've been there done it and got no joy out of it as a result so I don't do it anymore and that's my personal choice yeah and it's interesting to hear your perspective given like you said you've kind of been around it all you've seen both sides of it um it's very frustrating uh, being a predator manager, you know, in predator control. It's very frustrating because I don't want to have to kill the lion or the bear or the wolf or even the coyote. I don't want to. Uh, but so often they persist. I mean, it's like, doggone it. I uh, was hoping if we did this or that or maybe the rancher moved his sheep somewhere. Or, you know, you made some adjustments that, the sheep can live, the livestock can live, the the wolves or the predators can live, and then uh, there's that persistence that it can't be resolved that way. We can't move away from the problem. The problem just moves with us. So, yeah, uh, I've just never enjoyed going out and killing that predator and, and going home with some satisfaction of, uh, I did solve the problem. That gave me relief, and when you remove a problem i mean it, it lets the community calm down too you don't want this persistent headline every day wolves killing cattle wolves killing cattle um, everybody gets tired of that and sometimes you just got to bite the bullet so to speak no pun intended and uh, remove the problem uh, it's not been fun for me, but it's, it's, it's been a job that I've chosen to do and accepted the responsibility that goes with it. And uh, sometimes things ain't always fun at the job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, any job. But I imagine there were times, of, particularly in your case. Yeah. Um, so wolf seasons are open in many areas now, many states across the West, um, several states, I guess. Not so in the Great Lakes. Um, so regardless of what your opinions are, though, on that, um, people are killing wolves now. People are killing lots of coyotes. Predator management is something that's done across the country. Um, in many cases, you know, I think it's, like you said, it's legal, well-founded. People enjoy it. It's happening. Um, but you did speak a little bit earlier today about 
some of the things we can do as hunters that if we're going to go and do these types of things that can um, help us mitigate some of the risks as far as bad PR with that because because there is so much it's so emotionally charged um, that when one side of this debate sees a dead wolf on Facebook or something it can turn into a firestorm of of more madness um, what would be your your advice to, to other to hunters as far as how we talk about wolves or how we um, post pictures whether it be of dead wolves or, or talk about hunting or anything like that how do we handle our PR when it comes to predators as hunters better? Well, my individual opinion on this, and I guess others would look at it from all perspectives, but uh, if you're a hunter and you hate what you're hunting, um, you don't represent me. There's no animal I've ever killed because I hated it, whether it was a mouse or a pheasant or a wolf. Um, as you alluded to the uh, it just it makes me angry when i see some guy who's legally shot a wolf and he puts a bear hug on it and he tries to hold it up and you know with a little camera angle uh, you can make wolves look gigantic you can make antlers look enormous you can make fish look unbelievable um you want to take that picture be my guest, take it home, put it in your album book. I don't want to see it. I mean, there was a time, and I was, I'm as guilty as the next. When, when I was younger, you know, you got your first whatever, your first pheasants, your first rabbit, your first geese. Sure, you got pictures, and you took pictures, and uh, your friends, you carried them around, showed them to each other. But that was on a pretty small scale, at, you know, in the home or community area. But people putting these photos of them holding their dead whatever going on Facebook and public media that can go viral. I mean, you're doing hunters no favor at all. You're doing trapping no favor. Uh, a lot of people say, well, Carter, if you're a trapper, you ought to be representing trappers. I tell trappers, count your blessings that trapping is even legal. And if you enjoy trapping and the state permits it, be my guest. But if you wonder why everybody's down on you as a trapper or a hunter, when you look at the display of death being shoved in people's face, nobody wants to see that. Um, and I know that it, no matter how much I plead, it's not going to change. So if you hate wolves and you want to put your gory pictures of the wolves that you shot, uh, the latest one right now is somebody with an AR-15 in Alaska that mowed down 10 wolves on a snowmobile nonetheless too. I mean, uh, I have no respect whatsoever for somebody that does that. Go out there on the ground, take your little single shot weapon, one shot, let's see you get 10 wolves, and... Uh, I really don't care if you do or not. I'm not interested. And neither is the majority of the world, I think, is sick of carnage and sick of death. So uh, I think hunters that want to perpetuate this sport, this hobby, this privilege, have to really work at policing, hunting, trying to get people to, I guess, just be ethical.
you can you can go out and do this with respect for what you kill and you can do it in the privacy of the field where you take it uh, I don't haul things home on the hood of my truck I mean we we kill a deer or an elk we cut it up in the field we put it in uh, we call them game bags wrap them up to keep the insects and dirt off of them and we put it in our vehicle and we transport it home and we don't advertise to the whole world and every town we drive through that look at me look what I killed and I think that's what it's about and if you want to take pictures and show them to your family and your friends and your relatives perfectly fine I don't want to see them unless you're a friend of mine and I I want to see it and you want to offer that opportunity for me to view it yeah that that that's how I look at it it's a big tall order because uh, we just got so many people involved in hunting and uh, we all have different values and attitudes and we all re react differently it, it definitely is a tricky topic and it's one of those things where when this imagery especially imagery gets out there online that when when seen by someone who doesn't have the context of why we do what we do or how we do what we do when they just see this image especially if it's not a particularly respectful image um yeah, it can be seen and be really upsetting to people and cause cause harm to the overall hunting community in a lot of ways where, and I talk about this all the time, but we live in a democracy where we are not the majority. And um, if we want to continue what we're doing, we just need to be mindful of that and careful about that. In the end, it may result in nobody's fault but our own. Yeah. Uh, if we want to maintain... Uh, the privilege to to be hunters and it falls back on our responsibility to uh, promote it in a um, positive image if there can be one and, mm -hmm. and you know one of my when a, looping back to predators too um, when I think about this the the importance of hunters representing themselves well to the general public because we need their essentially their approval to continue what we're doing in the future um, to maintain that privilege, part of our big claim to legitimacy as hunters very often is that we are great conservationists. We are stewards of the land, of the wildlife. We care about these animals. Um, we do so much to, to help keep these animals in sustainable populations and, and whatnot. But when you start being selective about what animals you care about and you say, oh, yeah, I'm a great conservationist. I care about deer and elk and do this. But when it comes to wolves, shoot, shovel, and shut up. Get rid of those things. When you start seeing that happen, I think we lose all credibility to being conservationist if you start just being selective. I only care about the animals I want to shoot myself. Um, so I think if even if you don't like wolves, even if you're not interested in them in any way, even if you view them as competition for your resource, if that's the way you want to see it, whatever. But just from a pragmatic standpoint, if you want to be able to continue to hunt, you got to walk the walk of, of being a real responsible hunter and conservationist, which, which means we need to show respect to all the animals in the landscape and maintaining a, a true balanced natural ecosystem includes wolves and coyotes and bears. And um, people can see right through the BS if, if we're not being true to that, I, in my opinion. Well, these predator and prey go together. I mean, it's, it's the beginning of time. There's specific predators who prey on uh, certain prey species. And I, I look at that as absolutely, I mean, when I go out to a marsh, 
if I see a mink attack a muskrat, I'm thinking that's the way it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you just take, in our backyard, we feed birds all winter. And we have sharp shin and Cooper's hawks come through our yard every day all winter and kill a junco or kill a finch. We say that's the way it works. And there's always more juncos and more finches next winter, so they replace themselves. And those hawks have every right to exist and to eat those prey. And I hear so many humans saying, well, it just ain't right, you know, the way the, the, way the wolves kill or the way the hawks kill. Well, look in the mirror. Humans, you're either killing your food or someone's killing it for you. Uh, and it ain't pretty either, no matter how you want to paint it. So I, I, as I have gotten older, I am careful not to judge what goes on out in nature. It's kill or be killed is pretty much how it works. And the humans, we're just one species. And I don't look at us as superior to these other species. Now, there's others who would say, well, Carter, you're dead, you're dead wrong. And I've had a lot of people tell me, look, if an elk needs killing, I'll kill it. And sorry, I don't accept that at all. And there's people who say, well, the wolves are killing my elk and they're killing my deer. And so I've said that to people in the situation. It's right. I said, well, you know, I, I have a deer and elk tag in my billfold this year, and uh, they can have my deer and my elk if we're going to add this possession, you know, that they're ours. They're not ours. We're just privileged, some of us, to be able to uh, hunt the surplus and uh, get the opportunity to take some really good quality organic meat home with us to eat. But I don't look at us as privileged uh, over any more than those uh, predators out there that are doing what they do. I, uh, I really appreciate your perspective on on all of this. It's it's really interesting. I think the things you've been involved with give you just give you a, a context that I think a lot of people don't have. The, I mean, I, I can I can say whatever I want about wolves from what I've read or seen, but I have no on the ground experience like that. And and so many people that like to debate about wolves have no real on the ground context with predators in many cases. Um, but what someone in your shoes who's who's been there, who's talked to all sides of this. Um, Who's, who's come at this as a predator manager at one point in your life, as a hunter, as someone who enjoys wildlife. Um, it, it's just, um, it's fascinating. It's interesting. I appreciate you speaking up about these things, giving your opinion. I think um, we need to hear all sorts of different things like this, and uh, it's much appreciated. So thank you for taking the time to, to talk with us about it, Carter. Well, I feel privileged getting the opportunity to talk to you for a while about this. Uh, much I never hesitate to share my opinions with people that want to listen. And that is a wrap on our Wolves and Coyotes and Hunters podcast. Hopefully you found this one as interesting as I thought it was. I appreciate you sticking around, hearing it out, listening to these different ideas, ways of thinking about predators and how we relate to them as hunters. Um, a couple book recommendations for you. Number one, if you enjoyed hearing what Carter had to say, he has two very interesting books out. One is called Wolfer. I've read that. 
I found that very interesting. It goes into detail of his whole history within this issue. And then his more recent book is called Wolfland. Also, um, a book related to coyotes is called Coyote America by Dan Flores. And that is a really interesting book, too. And then finally, if you want to read Thinking Like a Mountain and other essays by Aldo Leopold, I can't recommend enough his book, A Sand County Almanac. So give those ones a read. I think you'll find something interesting in there related to this entire topic that we talked about. Now, to wrap it up, I just want to thank our partners who helped make this possible. Uh, Big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, thank you all for listening. I appreciate you coming at this episode with an open mind. I appreciate your comments and your opinions and your thoughts. I'm always interested in hearing what you think about this stuff. So thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing your feedback. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.